0: Listeners, fans, friends, casual downloaders of the Directors Club podcast. This introduction today is very different. Very different than what I've provided in the past, actually. Um, Usually I kind of have an outline or just some notes prepared about what I want to discuss. And I'm trying to go off the cuff. Uh, I'm really just trying to speak my mind As a stream of consciousness Kind of uh, experiment Well, not really experiment But I uh, certainly hope you Get something out of what I'm about to say Um, You know, some of it's political But a lot of it is personal And um, I think both of them are equated So let's get some updates and news out of the way I want each of you not to feel disappointed uh, With a decision I've come to make very similar to the one that Patrick made last year, but I'm not I'm not completely saying fairly well, so don't get nervous. You know, hosting a podcast for six years has been one of the most incredible experiences of my life. The emails I've received, the Facebook requests and messages and tweets and um, all the correspondence, each of them means so much and has brightened every single day. Uh, It just means a lot that people listen, but the fact that people take some effort to impart their thoughts and comments and questions, you know that that really says a lot. I mean, when I look at the iTunes reviews, and you know, I see all these nice words because I'm not a professional broadcaster. I'm not somebody who really set out to make this a career of any kind I just did it because it was fun I did it because I enjoyed having conversations with my friend um, in his basement after we watched a movie and just put a mic in between us one day and next thing you know we're out podcasting uh, and so it means everything to me but I want you to know that despite the fact that I am not going to be a full-time host of Directors Club as of mid to late January of next year, I will be around. I will obviously be contributing. And before you get out the handkerchief, let's just say right up front, I'm not disappearing. I'm not really quitting. I'm just taking on a different role. Perhaps you can look at it as executive or associate producer, I will be still creating the blog posts, uploading the episodes, but I'm giving the chance for two other hosts to take this format and run with it. One of these new hosts that has, I guess, inherited the show, you might say, is a very smart and enthusiastic film fan that you've already heard. Um, he's local, local boy who really, really brings a lot of energy to the mic, and his name is Al. He was on the Lumet episode, Peter Jackson episode, Stanley Kubrick episode, and Adam McGowan. So go back and listen to those episodes. Get comfortable with that voice, because I can guarantee you he's going to bring his A-game every time, and even if you're skeptical, maybe you weren't like over the moon about him. Maybe you just thought like, well, he's a guest, and that's good, but please give him a chance. Um, Much like Patrick and I have experienced, you know, it's not easy to really, um, I don't know, sort of just get comfortable with the idea of putting our voices out there and, you know, people responding to it however they're going to. In fact, there could be maybe more negative reviews after Al comes aboard. There could be people saying, I don't like it anymore. And that would be uh, disappointing um, if that's the kind of reaction, which obviously I can't control, but if you had that reaction, I would be uh, unhappy. And I don't want that to happen. Just be patient. Not every episode, maybe even off the bat, will be a home run. Maybe it will be. But I have faith that Directors Club can continue because it's a format I'm proud of. I don't want to see it disappear. I like the idea of playing the role of Willy Wonka and passing it on to two new hosts. And um, one of these hosts you've yet to even hear, so that's an exciting in of itself, but I want you to trust me in my judgment. Both hosts will continue in this show's tradition, and I will be guesting, obviously, on four to five episodes next year. I mean, there's names on the schedule that I don't want to miss out on. Um and many familiar guests that you've heard in the past will still return. So don't think that like this is the end or it's really gonna be a completely different uh animal. It's not. <laughs> this is not the time. this is not the end of my time with the show. And I could even come back as the third co host when and if I choose to do so, and we'll see if that happens. But I, I can save that indefinitely for the not too distant future. I'm taking More of a backseat instead of a front seat role in Directors Club. Um, You know, I'd like to see if this show can last. Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll flop. I don't know. But I don't think so. I really don't. Maybe it's because I'm an optimist, which is a strange thing to be in this day and age. Um, And who knows? You know, I... I, I I can't say this right now for sure, but I, I would imagine that Patrick and I can contribute bonus episodes the way we have been or simply take on an episode ourselves, you know, just as like a throwback. Speaking of Patrick, um, he is indefinitely taking a hiatus from podcasting. For those of you that... Subscribe to his wonderful show, Tracks of the Damned. You might be disappointed to know that it's kind of in limbo, so to speak. Um, I, I would I would venture to say that season one has concluded. So let's just hope Patrick decides to come back to podcasting next year you know and he, he finds it in his heart <laughs> to you know maybe join me again for an episode or a bonus episode or a commentary next year. Because to me, he is forever a part of Directors Club, and one of the smartest, funniest, and most insightful movie fans I've ever had the pleasure of calling a friend or a colleague, however you want to look at it. I understand his choice. After the election, there was just this huge wave of depression that set in to so many of my friends, and Patrick and... His partner Regina took it very hard, and they're sort of um, regrouping and kind of uh, you know, learning <laughs> how to cope and figuring out how to um, work on themselves as people, I imagine. But um, that's not to say they're, <laughs> they're not wonderful, great people right now. I think that they'll be resilient and um, figure out ways to um, channel their – their energies in the future so it's possible that tracks of the dam could come back next year it's possible that patrick could um guess on an episode or two here but it's not going to be for a while it's not going to be this year he was going to be on for the best of 2016 episode that's not happening so don't freak out if like oh my god patrick is gone and then jim is gone it's not 100% for certain. For me, I want to take Pop Culture Club to the next level. I want to give it a new name, a new look, a new feel, make it an interview show that you can look forward to just as much as this show. I'm going to be hosting that show. I'm going to be uh, doing interviews because I've enjoying them far more than anything right now. And if I can turn it into something of my own, much like Patrick did with his own show, it'll be every bit is fulfilling and exciting and all my enthusiasm energies will go into that so stay tuned um as for the rest of this year there are two more episodes definitely in the works the first being jonathan glazer which i mentioned at the end of this episode as well as the best of 2016 episode that you know patrick will not be a part of but bill ackerman will be the guest you hear on this episode will be joining me for that So now that the shock has worn off, hopefully, and you're probably all going, oh, man, that's a bummer that things are changing. But you have a whole new director's club to look forward to in 2017. Change can be good. So let's look at it that way. Let's be optimistic. Let's not think that, um, you know, I'm bailing and it's going to suck. So it's not. I really feel that way. But let's talk briefly And, of course, I use briefly in air quotes about a huge (laughs) reason why Patrick's decision and my melancholy, my anxiety, my shock and dismay. Actually, that would hold true for a number of people I know. And it should come as no surprise to find out what um, has caused all this. We have a (laughs) president-elect that, to me, was and is a joke of a human being now. Maybe you voted for him. Maybe I'm completely alienating you at this point. And I will openly admit that Hillary was not the strongest candidate when it comes to the Democratic Party. Deep down, it should have been Bernie Sanders, but that's the end of that discussion. Let's just say that you know Donald Trump won despite not winning the popular vote, which to me indicates that the Electoral College is a joke, and I know you're listening to this podcast to not hear about this crap Because that's what most people do when they want to escape and listen to something or watch something or read something. But listen, this is huge. Um, This is something that's near and dear to me. It's near and dear to Patrick. I'm not going to speak for him. He has his own thoughts. But I'm just saying, for me, um, personally, people's rationale behind why Trump was their choice is baffling. And quite frankly – Inhumane (laughs) to just invite him in with open arms. I'm not saying that I'm not going to give him a chance because, I don't know, people really want to believe in people, and I understand that completely, but this is an exception for me. The things he has said and done, allegedly raping a minor, all the horrible things he's said about minorities and women, you know, and I was sitting in a coffee shop and these two gentlemen were going on and on about the media and how they blow things out of proportion and make Trump out to be this demon, this this, this evil figure. And they do blow things out of proportion. That's true. Everything's embellished. But my bullshit radar was constantly going off every time Donald Trump would speak. He doesn't represent the America we need now. And we need to move forward. We need to embrace compassion and look for unity within another. Because we are incredibly divided, maybe even more now that he's been elected. You know, and it looks bleak. I want to believe in people. But honestly, after the election, I don't know if that's possible. I feel shattered. I'm not ashamed to say that. I am thoroughly depressed. I mean, there was—I mean, the day after, I just didn't want to get out of bed or watch a movie or podcast or do anything. But then twelve hours went by. I got up, started to do research, I started to go on Facebook and try not to get upset. But that happened anyway. Um, I want to know who to help, who to donate to, what petitions to sign, where can I volunteer. I have also managed to put in notice at my job because of the love. Felt for Trump there not to mention it's just not a healthy place so I'm moving forward and the truth is I have to find um, employment that makes me feel like I'm contributing on some in some regard and I don't know if that's possible and I'm fearful for the economy I feel like our country could implode at some point There's just a sense that things are not going to get better, and I want to be proven wrong. You know, I want Trump to prove me wrong. You know, like Dave Chappelle said at the end of his um, monologue on SNL, I want to give him a chance, but he's got to give everybody else a chance. You know, I see such anger and misogyny and racism, and I think Trump made that fashionable and welcome due to how he spoke and how he ran his campaign and the fact that he's the representative of our country. And I know now, as of you know, this morning, he's telling people to stop the hate, stop the crime, stop the violence. I just think, it's, I think it could be too late. People think of Trump's victory as their own, and they're free to act on that hate against minorities because they have a leader who expresses what horrible thoughts and feelings they may have had at one point in time. Or it's consistent. I shouldn't even say it's one point in time. People are hateful people. They exist, and we have to face that reality, and it hurts. It hurts knowing that this was the man that um, America chose, when everything in my heart and soul says he's dangerous. Now, I don't know the future. Will it lead to nuclear annihilation in World War III and the absolute worst scenario? I don't know, and I also don't know for sure if there's a God, but I'm beginning to doubt the light at the end of the tunnel, because... I thought we were going to progress more. I want to believe that everyone wants a better country, no matter who they voted for. But we just share completely different perspectives (laughs) on who would have done a better job if you, in fact, voted for Trump. And if you did, please don't unsubscribe and hate me now. But, you you know, you could think that my perception is completely askew and hate-filled in and of itself. And you wouldn't be inaccurate when it comes to trump that's true i don't like him period (laughs) um and i cannot believe it's gotten to this point but i also feel like yeah i have to wake up i have to wake up now um and fight those feelings with podcasting with writing songs with being proactive with Volunteering. I mean, I have to fight because I don't know what else to do. And, you know, I have to basically just tell myself that it could potentially not be the end of the world. But I've, I'm more leaning towards that scenario. You know, and maybe all of this is a coping mechanism and it's all self serving and podcasting is futile to put into the world when it's all going to go to shit but in this moment in time it has to be something that i do even if it's self-serving i mean it's just there's no other way so i want to conclude all of this <laughs> without you know being too preachy i just hope that you can find solace in the things that you love whether if it's music books animals exercise movies podcasts i don't know find things that make you feel connected in a way that I cannot see the president-elect doing for this country. In terms of his policy, in terms of how he speaks about unity, I don't buy it. I see us breaking apart, isolating, potentially living in fear because Trump has caused it. The media exaggerates a lot. I realize that, but I cannot find the hope in this world right now. But I do find comfort and grace In this ugly world, when I see a great movie, listen to a great podcast, um, check out a new record, or hear an entertaining and educational show like The Best Show with Tom Sharpling, I really hope Tom gets better soon because I think we need people like that more than ever. We need people to entertain us, make us laugh, make us feel joy, um, provide excitement in these very dark times. And if it takes demonstrations and protests and you get something out of that experience and march on, I'm not one to say that it's not going to do a lick of good. But just take time to do research on how to make this country better, utilizing your humanity, and not Trump's fucked up idea of how we can make things great, quote unquote. You know, I want to believe he isn't evil, but I can't. Not right now based on what I know and what I've heard. And I openly accept you as a person if you disagree, but I cannot respect your opinion or decision on electing him. It's not something that I can ever just say, oh, that's cool, you know. But make the arguments, okay, fine, maybe Hillary was worse in your mind. I am not budging on my instincts, intuition, and empathic um, response To what I felt Could have been Our first female president That Maybe I blindly believed in Who knows There's no way to know now (laughs) Um, You know And I still just can't abide Or respect Trump based on his Hate speech His ideas And of course His ridiculous Orange glow Trump In my mind You're fired Or you should be but I don't have the authority on that. Um, We'll see if the American people agree or disagree as time goes on, how things change. We end up self-destructing based on some of the worst decisions um, in our country's government. (laughs) I don't know. We'll see. With all that said, I'm, I'm scared. I'm skeptical. I'm, trying to hold on and i hope you are too and that's why i've said all this with all that said i'm done (laughs) i love each and every one of you if even if i've never met you in person if you're a strange stranger or this happens to be your first time listening just please stay subscribed even if i'm not the predominant voice that you hear on the show as of next year it'll still remain great i want to assure you of that So please welcome the new hosts with an open mind and an open heart um, in mid to late January of 2017. Like I said, I am forever grateful for all the connections I've made, all the friends, all the listeners, and that gratitude isn't going anywhere. Um, I will be around. I will be guesting. So let's move forward together right now as I present another great episode with one of my favorite guests and friends. Here it is. The Peter Bogdanovich episode of Directors Club please enjoy it Hold on everyone Hang in there good afternoon good evening good morning good night and good luck I love you in the morning Our kisses
1: deep and warm your hair upon the pillow. Like a sleepy golden storm There's many love before us I know that we are not new In city and in forest They smiled like me and you But now it's come to distances And both of us must try Your eyes are soft with sorrow say goodbye <laughs> I
0: guess be fun. hello everyone and welcome to the directors club podcast I am Jim Lazkowski and this is the first of the three potentially final episodes that will have this kind of format that you know and love but I want to assure you that all is gonna all the only thing that's really gonna change are the voices of the hosts and kind of Before I depart as full-time host, I wanted to talk to some of my favorite guests from the past and present. And as many of you know, one of my favorite people to talk film with is also the host of his own podcast here on the Now Playing Network. And it's called Supporting Characters, which I hope everybody checks out over this uh, winter break of sorts. Check out the uh, first 16 episodes. Please welcome once again to the show a man that knows how to tackle... When playing football, Mr. Bill Ackerman. Hello, thank you for having me back. Anytime, anytime. So, you know, Bill, this is a scary time in the future of this country, but (laughs) I think it's just as important to provide some distraction and entertainment and education of the things that people enjoy and love. So... I'm glad that you're here to share in the enthusiasm of this director that we're gonna talk about today.
2: Yeah, well he came of he came out like and got big in the uh at a at a time of conflict in the country. I mean he came out in the uh I mean his heyday was the Vietnam era and his stuff did act as a kind of nostalgic escapism at a time when things were pretty uh heavy on friction in the country so it's it's a it's an appropriate time
0: that's a a good point i mean uh, we're talking about peter bogdanovich as most of you know um and it's fitting to cover him since recently i had the pleasure of, of talking about roger corman and you know honestly i didn't check out the majority of peter bogdanovich's career until this episode was on the schedule
1: You'll say that we're all pissed and nervous. We are. Republicans might hurt us. Oh shit. And we're falling apart. I hope not, but we probably are. I see this country is quite racist, with misogyny and hatred. Times need a distraction. And I said, what about Peter Bogdanovich? I think we need to talk about films to get our minds off that idiot president. Watch the last picture show. And what's up, Doc? Get along now. Because Trump's in charge somehow. It's plain to see we're over. I hope now probably are. But we can still read books and protest. What about Peter Bogdanovich? He's made great comedies. Might be a narcissist, but he made paper Moon, St. Jack the Cat's meow. And don't forget
0: Target. And they all laugh. I usually just like talk about first experiences, and that immediately came to mind, where um, working at a video store and ordering titles that for some reason our store didn't have, and a lot of that came from me reading the Quentin Tarantino biography and seeing like a list of some of his favorite movies in the, in the back of the book. And I was like, wait a minute, how can our store not have this? Or how can our store not have this? I mean, we didn't have one Jean-Luc Godard movie. We didn't have The Last Picture Show. It was like... I mean, we focused... We were essentially kind of like uh, an offshoot of a blockbuster. We were called Box Office Video at the time. And it it was a primarily let's focus on new releases kind of store because that's what sold uh, new releases in porn. (laughs) So, you know, at at the time, it was just not a big a priority for the manager of the store to get titles that may be significant to cinephiles. It was just like... But the thing is is like I started talking to more people that I would consider to be cinephiles and obviously if the last picture show was there they would rent it. So it it sort of became like my own trajectory of convincing the manager to let me do most of the ordering for the store and I had to essentially tell her that well, you know what? Maybe this will only rent once, <laughs> but it's worth having in a video store because it's a significant film. I did that for um Olivier Olivier and Europa Europa, uh, for the time. And I was like, I don't know if this will be huge, but trust me, this these are critically acclaimed and people who are interested in foreign films will get into it. So I feel like I I got the last picture show for the stored having not seen it. And um me and my coworker Kim, we both watched it for the first time, pretty much back to back, and I was floored beyond belief. Um, you know, it's it's Every time I watch it, it, it moves up higher in my list of favorites, and I think it, it is your favorite film, if I'm not mistaken.
2: It is my favorite film. Yeah, I think um, I first saw the theatrical cut because my father had the laser disc for it, and it actually is kind of an odd film for him to have because he's not really a uh, like an art an art film guy, and I guess it is kind of an art film uh, for a Hollywood film. Um, yeah, I, I think say so. I think the um, the fifties small-town nostalgia of it appealed to him just like on a um, kind of relating to it from like the perspective of like his coming-of-age years. Uh, And then I worked at Criterion, and they had done a Laserdisc of his director's cut, which is now the only version that you can get of Last Picture Show. Um, So I bought it, like the box set that they had done, and that version... Um, is where I really—I mean, it was a second viewing, but also seeing like the full intended version. That was where I really fell in love with it, and I read the book. And uh, just one of those films that got better over the years for me. Like every time I'd watch it, it would be—you know—a uh, like like you were saying, like it raises even higher and higher. Um, I think what I like about it so much, and is that the um, like it kind of marries the best of old Hollywood. Seventies Hollywood, even European films as far as like the frankness of the sexuality like it seems to like hit all the all the bases um that I like in films and um i don't know there's a there's a uh a a sexy melancholy americana is a kind of film that is doesn't get made enough, and I think the ice storm uh, is the only other film I can think of that really does it perfectly um, that's a
0: yeah that's that's a good correlation I hadn't thought of that. Wow! Yeah, and I was going to rewatch
2: the Ice Storm later today. <laughs> yeah, so that's well, and kind it's of also fitting. Well, and it's also a period film because mm, Ice Storm yeah. would be doing again, again, jumping back twenty years the same way the uh, last picture show did. But what's interesting about um, Bogdanovich is that there's such a mythology surrounding his whole life. Like he has, I think, shy Roman Polanski, the most interesting life of a major filmmaker. It seems um, that way. Well, just the short version of it is that he was like a a young theater director and actor. He had started with Stella Adler and was a major cinephile, like would go to movies constantly. Uh, He had a a famous index card collection where he would write little synopses of every movie he saw from 1952 to 1970, um, which he still has. And they talk about making it into a book at some point. Yeah. but he uh, began writing for uh, Esquire magazine and programming uh, retrospectives on old Hollywood directors like Alan Dwan and John Ford and Orson Welles, uh, at MoMA. And uh, so he was coming into filmmaking from the cinephile side, kind of the way that the New Wave directors did in France. But he's the first American cinephile uh, turned major director. I mean, I guess there was probably experimental directors that like, uh, had some background in the... Um, the film journalism side of it, but Bogdanovich would have been like the first equivalent to the Truffaut Godard kind of approach to breaking into moving pictures. Um, it's just, it, it's an interesting, um, he, he would like, I guess the equivalent would be someone like Tarantino or Scorsese, like as far as like the first director who was a movie. Yeah,
0: geek. no, that's a good point. That's probably why Tarantino loves them so much. He, he, yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's fascinating when we get to, they all laughed and how, uh, it's really become a a huge influence for guys like Wes Anderson. And, you know, it's kind of... I'm Watching it now, it was kind of like, wow, I do see how this film really played a significant role in some of my favorite filmmakers in terms of influence. But, yeah, it's just... It's it's fascinating to think of the lack of self-awareness, maybe. I mean, or in terms of because one thing we brought up i don't know on the show a while back about horror films is that nowadays too many horror directors are self-aware and and so hyper aware of the genre that they're involved with that most of the time they'll they'll set out to say i want to make this kind of movie or i want to make my own texas chainsaw massacre um to where the i mean there's definite uh i think there's there's really good Films that come out of just like, I want to contribute a a gritty 70s horror film or something like It Follows, I want to sort of mirror the style of Carpenter but create my own world. So I don't think that's a bad thing. But there's certainly an interesting jumping-off point where you mentioned this is the first cinephile director that maybe before that, I don't know if that really existed because... There weren't a lot of directors.
2: I mean, I'm assuming every... John Ford and Orson Welles, they all loved movies. Sure, sure. And there was film references within films about filmmaking. Like, there's a reference to Capra and Sullivan's Travels, or there's a reference to cat people in Bad and Beautiful. Like, there's references to films prior to Bogdanovich, but, I mean, the, the number of times that like people are watching Howard Hawks' movies, for example, in the early Bogdanovich films, like, it's... that's that strain of postmodernism, it's a new, it's a new element.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I I sense that was really fresh and exciting at the time.
2: Yeah. Well, he's, I mean, I think David Thompson is the critic that, that argued that a lot of the early Bogdanovich films felt like an extension of his film criticism, um, which Hmm. is an interesting way to read it. I mean, you could see, you know, the influence of Fritz Lang or Hitchcock or whatever on, on targets, or the influence of John Ford on, Uh, Or Orson Welles on Last Picture Show. Obviously, Howard Hawks and Preston Sturgis with What's Up Doc. Yeah. And so on. I mean, the the early films... I mean, however much Quentin Tarantino gets, you know, in trouble or praised for sampling films of old and De Palma before him, Bogdanovich was the first person to really... You you loved him or hate him based on how you felt about how he was reappropriating older films.
0: Yeah, No, that's definitely true, for sure. I mean they're watching What's Up, Doc, you cannot not think of something like Bringing Up Baby or His Girl Friday.
2: Oh, um, yeah. I mean, he was talking to Howard Hawks about how much he was taking from Bringing Up Baby. Like, it's not <laughs> it's not your imagination. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's funny. But yeah, I mean, it, we'll be started at the beginning here because Targets is a movie that both Patrick and I had talked about on the show in the past is kind of being like this revelation for both of us. It's It's a horror film that actually horrifies without being conventionally gory or have a a monster, uh, you know, sort of character. It's really just the definitive, like, psychological terror. And for me, it's it's, it's really just... I remember seeing it not too long ago after hearing about shootings on the interstate that were seemingly random and... To me, that's just as scary as home invasion. It, it, yeah. like This movie causes me such anxiety because I think just the invasion of a personal safe space, like in your home or in your car, really terrifies me when it's just out of left field, out of nowhere, and you're not expecting it, and it just sort of happens, and we don't get any sort of explanation or backstory. It's just something that this... Kid decided to do, and it's loosely based off of the uh, Charles Whitman um, shooter who shot 35 yeah. people.
2: It's interesting in Bogdanovich's career because it feels so unlike anything else in his filmography. Like, it is a situation where he's trying to make a smart AIP type film. Like, it's very typical in terms of the subject matter. Um, it's him. I mean, it's famously taking this, this Corman challenge of I've got two days with Boris Karloff, you know, you need to use this, this amount of minutes from the terror. And uh, you need to make your own, can you make your own picture out of that? Uh, In a way, there's another Bogdanovich film that no one ever talks about. Uh, called Voyage to the Planet of Prehistoric Women that is also that same year for Corman, but that's like him just shooting maybe 10 minutes of new footage of Mimi Van Doren and cutting it into this uh, ridiculous Russian sci-fi epic. Um, The the targets could have been the exact same thing had he not had the the brilliant idea of making it (laughs) postmodern with that footage from the terror. I mean, it could have just been another programmer. Um, But it's interesting also because the... um, it's both a, a, a grim thriller and also, like, a warmly nostalgic celebration of Boris Karloff.
0: Such a weird juxtaposition that manages to, like, both of those elements really complement each other and work well together, as opposed to being, like, yeah. two completely okay. different films.
2: Okay,
3: goodbye. Hey, you smoke too much. Uh, tell him to send that pit right out. Byron, you see our ad in the trades? No. Mm-hmm. This picture's going to open up on a hundred theaters tomorrow.
1: Great film, eh, Jenny? It's all right kind to clean up. Is this the new script? Has everybody read this? Sam? This is a work of art. Thank you very much. No, I'm serious. This is a very important film. This is the kind of property I'm going to be proud to put my name on. Are you writing this down, Ed? It's a good script, Sam.
3: Don't you think so, Byron? I'm not making any more films, Marshal. What? What, Byron? I'm retiring.
2: Well, did you know that um, Samuel Fuller did an uncredited rewrite on the on the script? Oh,
3: no, um, no. and he wouldn't
2: take any credit. But that's where the Sammy Michaels name comes from. Uh, oh, <laughs> like that's okay. That's a that's a that's a tribute to Fuller. But even some of the um, like the uh, that typewriter like D I E, like that close up, like that shot cut to it. Oh, yeah, like yeah. That's that's Fuller, <laughs> uh, his contribution. I mean, it's 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 him using the best like all the tricks that he. Learned from talking to all these filmmakers as a journalist, trying to put them all into place for like the you know the ultimate suspense picture that he could make on you know just the peanuts that he had to spend <laughs> from Corman. Uh, but yeah, it, it is. It's also the first film to be uh, have the distribution hampered by tragic deaths because uh, after that film got acquired by Paramount, uh, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy were both assassinated. Right. And so it it actually hurt the distribution for that film. Oh, certainly.
0: Um, I, uh, people people wouldn't have been ready to watch a movie like this after those tragedies.
2: No, no. Yeah. So it, it 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 got him the gig doing Last Picture Show, but it 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 didn't have the chance that it should have because of of those uh, of those tragedies.
0: Yeah, and I mean he it really also affirms that he can tell a story. Through images and not really providing uh, lengthy exposition or a reason for the violence to exist, and I think that in of itself is something that you know a filmmaker like Toby Hooper would do for Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Wes Craven for Last House on the Left, where it's just like this is just something that randomly happens and it just erupts into one person and they just go out and do these horrible heinous things and you don't know why. And we may never know why. We still don't know why a lot of horrible terrorist acts take place in our country because a lot of them either take their lives or they're, you know, gunned down. And it also feels completely its own, but fits right in line with the wave of kind of like 70s domestic horror despite this being released in 68. Because you had Bonnie and Clyde uh, the year before and then Wild Bunch the year after. So it's like... the violence, I think, m- must have been really jarring to experience uh, at that time.
2: Yeah, well, and I think Paul Schrader also correctly noted that it was the film that precedes Taxi Driver as far as the Vietnam vet going mad yeah. kind of kind of uh, thriller. Uh, it's also, it reminded me a little bit of Psycho at times when uh, when the killer is being pursued by cops. You're kind of in his... Car with him, like you want him to get away, like you identify with him more than the uh, the law.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, and it, it's interesting too because yeah, you mentioned Paul Schrader, and I thought of uh, you know Rolling Thunder too, and just how sure. you know there's just this externalization of rage and violence as a result of what this person had been through, and but we don't get like post traumatic flashbacks or anything. That uh, really the. I don't know. We don't get really an understanding of his internal state necessarily, other than maybe the way he interacts with his family.
2: Yeah, and it's funny. The, another speaking of Psycho, uh, Halloween. I also was reminded of the way he positions the corpses at uh, the af- yeah. after the in the home. Um, but it's funny because yeah, like we were talking about how it's the two different storylines, the Karloff story and the sniper story. And the Karloff story really feels like where Bogdanovich, I mean, he's even playing like a thinly veiled version of himself as much as Karloff right. is playing himself. Um, and they watch a Howard like,
0: Hawks movie at one point, don't they?
2: And But but even the, uh, the dialogue in those sequences has a whiff of screwball about them. Yeah, um, I like, can see that. There's a, there's a kind of a snappy patter to it that feels like, I mean, What's Up Doc feels like the one that feels like bogdanovich's own voice really you know in full bloom uh but you can get a sense of where he wants to go in those scenes although i think as a thriller i think targets is completely effective um and it's just so funny that it's because it's so not close to his heart i mean it's just i mean i I, i'm sure he likes talking about it because it's a respected film and he loved working with karloff loved having that chance but He's never returned to, to genre filmmaking of that type ever again. I mean, outside of like I think some TV movie.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I don't. It might just maybe he got this out of his system in a way, but it also has the metatextual element that a film like Scream would kind of go on to do successfully, especially in the mirror. You know, just the the killers seeing Karloff on the screen and in real life at one point yeah. towards the end of the film really reminded me of something that Wes Craven did in Scream with cutting back and forth between Halloween and what the killer is doing. So I mean it's just it's interesting. I mean I'd always like thought well the, you know th- this movie probably created this genre and that movie created this genre but this this does seem like the first again I probably use this term a lot but self-aware horror movie but at the same time it's not preachy or You know, I mean, it does have the element of Karloff commenting on his age and how horror, or, well, horror films, I guess, have changed, or making movies has changed. Yeah. So there's that.
2: Bogdanovich is funny, too, because he was part of that sex, drugs, and rock and roll generation of filmmakers, but was kind of a square. Like, he was not somebody that did drugs. He was not somebody that even really seemed to like rock and roll very much. And you think about the use of pop music and targets, it's all very kind of kind of grading in a way it's almost uses more like a sound collage <laughs> than it, even to to set a uh a mood. i don't think it's until mask that he really seems comfortable using rock music and that way he's almost more like a woody allen um like he, his taste in music seems to go back further than rock um but the the way that the um american family is disrupted like it's it seems like very critical in a subtle way of a uh conservative suburbia kind of americana thing like Mm -hmm. it's for 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 him to there's still like a there's a subversive edge to it that is also kind of rare for bogdanovich uh, in a way i mean i think that it's that that surprised me watching it again just how much it's 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 teasing a little bit like that perfect suburban household like you you're you're waiting for something to explode
0: (laughs) yeah no definitely and i think that's That that's it. Just seems so early on for that to occur, but at the same time, I mean, this is Vietnam. This is all. I mean, once the '70s hit, we got all those uh, horror films that you know, whether it was intentional or not, commented on uh, just how the country responded to Vietnam in the same way that uh, you know, horror films changed after 9/11. It was just—it's just interesting how to think about it in that time period, and just how what people were experiencing, and Bogdanovich being really um, just fearless in kind of causing uh, you know that this this type of world to take place, and it's done with such precision and intensity, and it doesn't. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It's really taut. It's really smart. It's really well executed all the way around. But it's also a movie I don't necessarily <laughs> get excited about rewatching because I'm like, well, I have to really prepare myself to get through some of this. But at least, like you mentioned, there is some levity with uh, Karloff and Bogdanovich um, together, so that's that helps it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's I think it's one of his overall strongest films. It's it, it's like I said, it's it's very. It's very typical, like compared to the rest of his body, where it feels like, yeah, it feels like he's trying to make the ultimate Roger Corman film and and really even transcend it because I when uh, AIP was going to put it out, but he pushed for a hollywood a Hollywood picture deal and got it. Um, you know, Robert Evans acquired it for Paramount, but then I don't even know, like if AIP had put it out, what that would have done. Cause mm. I mean, they probably would have exploited the shooting in a tasteless way rather than yeah. you know, had that, had, had that nervousness that Paramount had with it.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I know Corman was really disenfranchised after the intruder. Like, you know, he wanted to make a statement movie, a social commentary uh, drama, and just, it didn't, it didn't click with, with, the movie going public and that really got him down. So he's just like, well, I'll just give them what they want. These crazy beep pictures and be done with it. But it yeah. does, it does feel like targets is kind of an extension of the intent that maybe Corman had with the intruder and Bogdanovich's own vision at the time. And it's just, yeah. it's so assured for a first film. I mean, I know he's, he has been around a lot of directors and, you know, maybe worked second unit on uh, the wild angels, yeah. But but yeah, I mean it's just it, it, I, I watch him kind of like yeah it doesn't it doesn't seem like it is a Bogdanovich movie, but it is. <laughs> it's so great that it is that this yeah, exists well, in his filmography.
2: Well, things you can tell from with Bogdanovich is like he, I mean he was somebody that did you know books of interviews uh, 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 of different filmmakers and had friendships with a number of them. And it, it, looking over the entire body of work, there are certain things you can always you can always point to as the influence like like someone like Frank Capra his the influence was always have the actors speak more quickly than normal to avoid a slow pace with hmm. uh Howard Howard Hawks it was hide the cut by always having the you know always cutting on action so disguise the edit uh with Orson Welles it was a case where it really got a, got him excited about playing everything out in one continuous take and what you'll find in a lot of these films is that he tries to have all the action play out in, in I don't I don't know if it's always a master but like it's always one continuous shot like if he can avoid coverage if he can avoid breaking it up he will and if you listen to his audio commentaries he's always pointing out whenever he got it in a single shot like it's a he has a lot of reasons for doing it but it's something that you'll find certainly by the time he has last picture show and some money behind him and it's something that carries through even his television work like he's somebody that it, it, he's, he's taking what he's learned like as the best tricks from John Ford in the way he frames like horizons la, uh, last picture show or the way he uses deep focus black and white in paper moon and last picture show like he's somebody that was taking mental notes speaking to all the masters and tried to reincorporate them and I got to imagine to some extent someone like Quentin Tarantino who's a cinephile director or Martin Scorsese who's a cinephile director they're aware of when they're referencing existing films and when they're breaking new ground because they have that education. That,
0: yeah, you would think so. I just wonder if sometimes it's a, also on a subconscious level. You watch certain shots, certain movies, maybe so many times, it's just going to be a part of you. And, but I, at the same time, I know for a fact, having listened to Quentin Tarantino interviews, that he's like, oh yeah, I totally ripped off this from De Palma. You know he'll 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 outright say it and own up to it, um, but you know and it's interesting because like yeah I, the opening shot of I think it's they all laughed was directly inspired by Rio Bravo, which is I mean I always hear like you know oh Rio Bravo and Carpenter of course but I it's funny to think like yeah of course he influenced um, Bogdanovich quite a bit.
1: Oh
2: yeah, and Rio Bravo is referenced in multiple films. Even The Tom Petty uh has a uh, yeah. <laughs> has a clip from Rio Bravo in it.
0: Exactly, right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so after Targets, he um he then went back to um film journalism and he made a uh a documentary on John Ford directed by John Ford that was, you know, uh later uh, expanded and released in the uh in the 2000s. Ooh. Um but then he um he fell in with the BBS crowd for Last Picture Show, which is his breakthrough film. Um, where do you want to start with the conversation on this one? Oh this- boy, <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: do movies get better than this? I don't know. It's it's so it, it's such that opening shot. I mean, I I think like it's probably at this point it's it's an easy go to for a director to sort of wrap around. Um, an opening shot with a closing shot, but if you if you do that, you got me I kind of that 's kind of like something that you know if I was making movies, I would love to do that too, where you establish something in the opening shot that you reference later, but you experience it in a different context after all you 've been through
3: yeah
0: in this in this world and I think that that, that shot of the movie house is just it, it's, it speaks volumes <laughs> about this town.
2: And yeah, well, it's, it's so it's, great. This is where you, you I mean you have a few things that are interesting about I mean first of all this is where you introduce kind of a sympathy he has for southern and middle american towns and and country music uh so you know he he has a respect for small towns uh americana Clearly. Uh, and he's a new and he's a new yorker or, or an LA guy like he's not really from that part of the country. Like he does not have, he's always an outsider um, yeah they
0: all laughed as a beautifully shot New York movie
2: yeah and actually one of only two he made for a new for someone with the, the, those New York roots he doesn't he doesn't really exploit them in in terms of his filmmaking very often that's but, true but it's it last picture show is interesting because it's like it's the saddest and the sexiest film he ever made I mean I mean the things the things that made it commercial um, I don't know if he always understood what those were because he was looking to have hits afterwards, but he never really got into this tone, even with Texasville. I mean, he, this, this is like a very specific feeling he gets in Last Picture Show. Um, I mean, it's helped by the fact that he has one of the most you know powerful ensemble casts. And this is also when he was working still full str- uh, strength with Polly Platt, who is a pretty... Uh, invaluable early collaborator it was his wife at the time and she was the production designer and also a sensible sounding board as far as ideas like she's she has i mean i don't know how much her her role is overstated because when she left making pictures with him he had all these flops in a row (laughs) so sometimes her you know influence gets exaggerated but it's um it's all because he fell in love with sybil shepherd (laughs) <laughs> yeah well, that's how they that's i mean that's part of the legend i mean I, whether or not that's true or not i mean that's the thing about bogdanovich is that almost every film has a legend behind it like there's a yeah, story right? i mean there are multiple films based on elements of his, his life there's at least two documentaries three feature films um you know between the dorothy stratton stuff and you know oh true uh, th- even uh, did you ever see irreconcilable differences that 80s film with drew barrymore
0: you know what? I think I did when I was a kid. I don't remember it too well.
2: That's based on Bogdanovich also. Oh my god. <laughs> um but he, we'll get he, to that. He
0: did that? Wow.
2: No, it's based on him.
0: Oh oh I see. I see. Okay.
2: It's a parody of it's a mean parody of him. But hmm. we'll get we can get to that uh, That's interesting. But, but well
0: the, I uh, I also want to see the uh or I want to read the book about Saint Jack. I, it's like there's something about hot in the title.
2: Yeah. Uh Kind is it kind of hot?
0: Yeah, that's it. And I, I, I just, I just hear that like that's almost as good as watching the movie because of the stories in it.
2: Yeah. So yeah, I that that, that out. author was on the projection booth episode of Saint Jack, and he mentions you should contact him directly to get the book because it's kind of pricey right now on Amazon. Damn.
0: Okay. <laughs> but, I gotta, um, I gotta listen to that episode now <laughs> too after we're done. Um, well, it's
2: funny because yeah. Well, go ahead. so this is like Bogdanovich working for BBS, who were. Um, the, the short version of that is that that was um, Bob Ravelson, Burt Schneider, and Steve Blauner, and they had this company that they, uh, really after the success of Easy Rider, like they had done the Monkees TV show uh, as Raybert Productions and then brought in um, Steve Blauner and Make It BBS, and they had done the Monkees show, which was a big success, and then Head, which was not, but then Easy Rider was a phenomenon, and that gave them this clout to have a deal with with Columbia Pictures where they could make anything if they spent a million dollars or less and they could get distribution. Wow. So they had this freedom, artistic freedom, to make these personal films. And Five Easy Pieces was the first one out of the gate and that was a hit. Uh, made Nicholson a leading uh, star. Picture Show was the second film, um, you know, or, or well, second e- post-Easy Rider film. Uh, and that, I feel like the the sexiness of it was something that was maybe encouraged by BBS, like for commercial reasons. I think the fact that there's the nudity, I think that was... Probably not something Bogdanovich would have done had he not been encouraged to do that by the studio. Yeah, um, and he doesn't—he doesn't
0: linger on it in a creepy way either. No, he doesn't. Thank goodness. I, I think it's—you're right. It is—it—it it, it has that—you know—it has a sexy quality, but it's a lot of a lot of its awkwardness. Like, if there was sexy awkwardness, that's kind of yeah. like they kind of play off each other in this movie. Like, um, just you know, I. You know I, I, not to get too personal, but obviously when you're, you're, you're with somebody for the first time, especially when you've long admired them and you love them very much and you want it to all go smoothly and all go well, I mean like that that whole scene with Jeff Bridges and Civil Shepherd in the hotel room is sadly familiar <laughs> yeah but it's it's also just like really uh, that, that it, it just feels so authentic.
1: Oh, what's the matter with you?
0: I don't know. I don't
1: know. If something's happened. Well, get off a minute, for goodness' sake. I can more or
0: less relate to everybody in different moments throughout this entire movie. Um, yeah, in- including Sam. Now, as I've gotten older, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like that scene with him reminiscing by the lake while fishing and sharing that rolled cigarette. It just, oh my God, that 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 epitomizes why I what I love about movies and. It does bring to mind John Ford or Howard Hawks with a character talking about, this is how things used to be and coming to terms with the fact that he may not be around for much longer, but he also is kind of a metaphor for the actual town.
3: Old times. I brought a young lady swimming out here once, more than 20 years ago. It was after my wife had lost her mind boys was dead
2: me and this young lady
3: was pretty wild i guess and pretty deep we used to come out here horseback and go swimming without no bathing suits (laughs) one day she wanted to swim the horses across this tank kind of crazy thing to do but we'd done it anyway she bet me a silver dollar she could beat
2: me across. She did. I, we were talking about earlier about the uh, him wanting to play it all in one unbroken shot. Um, that's a perfect example of a scene that there was a uh, there was a mistake that Timothy Bottoms made. Like he blew a line, so they had to cut to the the water at one point. But otherwise, the original take was one continuous shot like that. And 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 it, it and it also he had the luck of the light coming. Like the sun coming out again at one perfect moment, like it was just, it was just a very charmed moment for the film. Um, and I'm trying to think, like, what would make a film like that a hit, like a big hit, like it was one of the top ten grossers of that year. Um, I have to think. I mean, uh, to some extent, the black and white was a novelty. Um, because I think prior to that, the last big black and white film might have been *In Cold Blood*. And I can't remember what year that was—like 1967, maybe. Yeah, the, I think uh, it was. But it's also it—it's—it's it's pointing the way towards much more uh, like commercial blockbusters because it's pre-American Graffiti, which would be a huge uh, success in terms of like portraying portraying a uh, a more innocent time. Uh, for nostalgic baby boomers that might want to break from Watergate or a break from Vietnam or a break from that kind of growing uh, dissatisfaction um, it, it, picture show might be a more melancholy way of approaching it but that same that same itch was being scratched by having it like that small town 1950s setting and also in a more prurient way, this also points towards things like animal house, which takes that same 50 setting and sexualizes it. Like this would be the first film to do that as well. But obviously the sex is almost all awkward or uncomfortable, but still it can be erotic, especially the scene that was originally cut out with Sybil Shepherd in the pool hall. That was only reinstated for the, um, oh, yeah. the, la- the laser disc and then the-, the eventual DVD releases and Blu-rays. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you look at that, it's across the board, like, uh, everyone is strong in it. I mean, Sybil Shepherd, you know, got a lot of shit f- with her later performances for Bogdanovich. I don't think quite fairly in, in Daisy Miller's case, but the uh, but she's great in it. Timothy Bottoms is fantastic in it. She, uh, Ellen Burstyn, you know, I mean, Cloris Leachman, everybody is delivering, um, you know, among the best performances that they they've still given to date, I think. Um, ben Johnson, of course, got the Oscar, sort of Cloris Leachman, and
0: yeah, uh, they w- w- deservedly so. I mean, I, that one of the best final s- confrontations in movie history, maybe when Timothy Bottoms goes back to Cloris Leachman's house. Oh yeah, Th- that is just, uh <laughs> and like you know, you kind of expect an, a a a normal protagonist to sort of meet her at that level, but he remains so still and quiet that part of it is frustrating and part of it's comforting at the same time. It's like, you know, he's primarily this awkward introvert that has like this kind of boyish innocence about him, but he's also realizing that he has to face these harsh realities of life that people go off to war, people die. Um, people fall out of love, or you know, some relationships can't come into fruition because of circumstance or whatever. And like all of his, he, he's just depleted at that point, and all he can think to do is just touch her hand. And I think that's really one of the best moments in the movie. Yeah,
2: because yeah, you know why he's doing it. Yeah, I, I, I you know, it, it's. I mean, I, I think there's not a scene in it I would lose in every, every every little throwaway moment feels profound to me. I mean, there's not real, I mean, it's, it's, it's my, you know, there isn't a best film ever made. Like that's, you know, that's not something you can quantify, but I, in terms of like when people ask me what my favorite film is, I think that film just every, every piece of it feels perfect to me. So it's just one that easily comes to mind when, when, when asked. But, uh, I, I was reminded, unfortunately that watching it this time of our, of our new president when, uh, <laughs> when uh b- uh Bobby in the kitchen uh you know does a little pussy grabbing without even asking
0: oh that's right, yeah, oh man <laughs> this
3: was locker room talk
2: which has unfortunately now you know a different feel to it than uh no pun intended than than it used to, but uh yeah, yeah
0: her, I her, mean, her experiences with some men in this movie really ugh. <laughs>
2: yeah, well, I'm trying to think about what it's trying to even say about class, because it's like, That's it's, true. It's, it's portraying the rich as like very decadent uh, in terms of their sexuality. But then, you know, but the, even the, the poor kids are, are are sleeping around and, you know, fumbling in, in trucks and sleeping with the coach's wife and and the degree of perversion also in the town i mean the way that it treats the preacher's boy as a as a would-be pedophile or the uh mm. the coach as a repressed homosexual you know and like playing that out in like a really awkward way like he's closeted and, and it's it's got a conservative element to it that i, I don't know it, it's it's almost at odds with the, f- with the with the way that it's free about its sex but it's all i don't know it, it can play it can play for both audiences either as a very liberated film or a very conservative film, depending on how you want to read it um, which probably was why it appealed to to audiences of all stripes at that point.
0: What really appeals to me about it now too is just this the town is like in this suspended state it can't really it's like stagnant it can't really move forward. It feels like, especially after Sam passes, the town sort of passes along with him in a way. Um, You know, it's like, I think even towards the end, Timothy Bottom says, or maybe it's Jeff Bridges, I can't remember who says, like, uh, ever since Sam passed, things haven't been the same. Yeah. I almost feel like (laughs) after the election, like there was just this weird suspended animation feel to everything where it was just like basically, I think we had a collective what the hell are we going to do now kind of feeling. Right. And this movie sort of captures that really beautifully. And not being heavy handed or just like so overbearingly melancholy that you feel depressed.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a pure cinephile vision of melancholy because the local movie house closing down right. is, treated, is, is treated as equivalent to a symbolic death of innocence. <laughs> um, and the last... I know that – I forget what the last film in the in the novel is, but he, I know he changed it to Red River for the film um, from McMurtry's right. book. But uh, but there's nods to all of his heroes. Like there's a, an Alan Dwan film showing like Sensei Iwo Jima on the marquee, or then it's uh, Wagon Master, which is a Ben Johnson film. <laughs> like it's the, all these nods to his you know director heroes. Yeah, you know, he, in the, he does in the that. A, he does
0: that a lot. <laughs> Um, like with Marquise I know in Paper Moon there's one in the background for, I think it's a Preston Sturgis movie, maybe.
2: Well, there's a, no, it's a, uh, well, I, 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 maybe, I, I, I know that there's a uh, John Ford uh, steamboat around the bend, I think. Yeah. No,
0: exactly. It's it's totally its own, and it's just, you watch it and you kind of go, man, this is really just ex- everything that I want from from, from a movie, and it's it's it it never it just it feels like it's in its own world but it's our world which is kind of like a it's a magic trick to really pull that off to where it feels grounded but it's also a movie universe at the same time um yeah and yeah what can you what yeah what can you say about just like ellen burston too i mean i probably mentioned this before um, you know, probably my first exposure to her was The Exorcist and then jump way years later to we- Requiem for a Dream. I've gone back, you know, obviously and seen more of her films and just think she's a, a national treasure. And uh, her her in this movie is almost on par with Cloris Leachman as far as I'm concerned. When you when you find out her relationship with Sam, that, that whole moment in the car is just whew, really beautiful. And-
2: And they never work together again. Uh, Even on Texasville, they don't include her character. And I don't know... That's I know know she was on the list for the Cher part in Mask, and for whatever reason, he didn't go with her. Oh, that would have been good.
0: But I I, I I do love Cher in the movie, but I think that would have been a good choice, too. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, let's move on, because... Wow, do we have one wacky... It's like the complete opposite. He just... He just f- did a complete 180 for his next film where, okay, let's uh, dial things up. I mean, one of my favorite genres is the screwball comedy where, obviously, everything is so heightened and characters are fast-talking, loud and buoyant and very self-assured. But as, as much as I would love to say that kind of my love for the genre started with His Girl Friday, I think it probably started as a kid rewatching The Producers or Clue. With Tim Curry, because like that wacky, over-the-top, fast-paced kind of style, sort of just uh, developed into my kind of humor. And but with all that said, when I'm watching this movie, I just don't like Barbra Streisand. I try.
2: Really? Yeah, I just. I find her more appealing in this than I normally do. Um, I mean, she's. Yeah, I I mean, I can tolerate her (laughs)
0: in this movie. Right. But as a screen presence, I don't know. I just. mm, There's something. There's a disconnect with me and her. Like, there is that whole self awareness kind of a thing going on because I think everybody knows that they're in a screwball comedy.
2: Yes. Well, and, and, and it's, it's funny because What's Up Doc is by far his commercial peak. And it's, I don't know that it's a film that is watched as much today as Last Picture Show, Paper Moon, Mask. Even the, the Gazara films might be revisited more among film, film buff types. Um, like it might just be a film that the Streisand cult following keeps alive. Because um, because Ryan O'Neill was somebody that was a really hot actor off of, after Love Story, and um, I think actually Barry Lyndon is really what kind of cut the legs out from under his uh, reputation. Um, but he's he's the uh, the Bogdanovich surrogate in two films from this era because he's also um, the star of Nickelodeon. But uh, ah, okay, but he but he um, yeah, I mean it's it's an up 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 to the moment kind of pairing of like two big stars and a rising hot director and i think i think the same way that last picture show played to a kind of nostalgia for um you know uh, the, like the, the the subject matter like with the 50s like i think what's up doc the, the the innocence of it and like that being you know a throwback to like a simpler kind of comedy it really kind of caught caught audiences of the early 70s like I guess they were just ready for that kind of film because all the other efforts at screwball farce from Bogdanovich have kind of—I'm trying to think if there's any exceptions—have received kind of a cold reception. Um, every time he's tried to make another "What's Up, Doc," it, it has not been a hit. And yeah. so, what, what, what is it about this one that was a, a blockbuster, whereas everything else, like uh, "Illegally Yours," or even the last thing he did, uh, she's uh, funny she's that way. way yeah. Like everything else. Uh, doesn't really connect with the larger public.
0: I don't know. That's a good question. I think a lot of it probably just has to do with the ensemble, like you mentioned. They uh, sort of tapping into that at that point in time was smart of them. The casting is really great, um, yeah. but I mean, it's you know, it's it's very funny to embrace like just the ridiculousness of uh, that line in love story with love never means. Having to say you're sorry, yeah. <laughs> At the end, I mean that's really funny, uh, which also reminds me of like what um, Cary Grant says in His Girl Friday about like he reminds me of that guy Ralph Bellamy, <laughs> sure. you know, like that's one of the earliest examples of something like that. But it's it's so wacky. Um, this movie is just, I mean, when everybody's like crawling in the hallway and col- slamming hotel doors and going into each other's rooms it's just i don't know i i I have an affinity for when things get that silly i can't help but find it endearing um but i mean really like ryan o'neill's fine in here i think he's fine but for me like it's the side characters that that really stand like kenneth mars
2: good lord it's also it also gave the world Madeline Kahn.
0: <laughs> yeah, is that, yeah, of course.
3: Now, you see, with me, it's just a matter of time. I don't know why, but somehow I just don't manage to hold on real long. So if you wait it out a little, it'll be over, you know? I mean, even if I want a fella, somehow, Arthur, I managed to get it screwed up. Maybe I'll get a new pair of shoes, a nice dress, a few laughs. Times are hard. If you fool around on the hill up here, then you don't get nothing. I don't get nothing. You don't get nothing. So how about it, honey? Just for a little while, let old Trixie sit up front with her big tits.
0: But what really stood out for me is the
2: chase. Well, I was going to point that out because, I mean, beyond the fact that it's a parody of Bullet, because it was set in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it's funny because it's... It's obviously got like Howard Hawks, Press and Search's kind of verbal, urban wit kind of kind of dialogue dri- driven comedy, but it also has this kind of crazy car chase action uh, destruction element to it that kind of foreshadows a kind of more kind of rednecky Smokey and the Bandit kind of comedy that would be more prevalent later in the decade and up into the early eighties. When so did it's, it's
0: actually? When did it's, it's, a, it's a Mad 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 World come out?
2: That's – was that 60 mm. – uh, it, it's it, – I don't know that – is it 67? Maybe. might be earlier. I, it might be 65. I, I don't know off the top of my head. Um, but, yeah. yeah I, I mean, it's not the first film to invent a frantic kind of um, farce or physical comedy or anything. But, like, I, th- I think that it it had an influence – Beyond just being like a uh, a verbal uh, wacky comedy, I think it, that that car chase comedy was also something that was influential, and it's 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 odd to have them both in the same film.
0: <laughs> it is. It's definitely <laughs> it becomes a completely different movie in that moment. Wow! It's a Mad no. Mad, Mad, Mad World came out in 63.
2: 63? Huh. Okay, I was way off. <laughs>
0: wow! I'm surprised. I didn't think it was that soon, but I mean, I think that you know why not? Let 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 him have his fun with that, and it's. You know, the energy and just the manic energy is kind of infectious here. Um, I mean, there's certain moments that I just, <laughs> I, I think like uh, just them all going under the table at the same time. And uh, just the, the mistaken identity component of it, him setting the hotel room on fire. It's all play to 11. And yeah. you you can either find that grating and annoying um, or you can just roll with it. And for the most part, I just I just go with it. I don't think it's his best comedy. No. But for what it is, kind of like it's a live action cartoon, kind of literally at the very end. Uh, I like it. I like it
2: yeah. just fine. I like it too. I, I find it strange that it's this commercial apex for him, um in, in, in a way that like the Gazara films are not. Um I don't even know that it's... A, I don't know how well it would a play today for a contemporary audience. That I, I just feel like if you want screwball comedy at this point, you can go back to Howard Hawks. Like you don't need... <laughs> you yeah. don't need What's Up, Doc. Um, I feel I, like there's,
0: there's got to be filmmakers nowadays who s- still embrace that level of s- insanity. I mean, to some degree, I think David Wayne does with his comedies, but those are more... Parody films and satires, the likes of the Zucker Brothers, I would say. But
2: yeah, and I mean, you can have moments like in Mistress America*. Um, oh yeah, in, for sure. That 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 hinted that kind of uh, that kind of madcap, uh, you know, uh, situation comedy. But I, I don't think you could make what's up doc a, 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 a big blockbuster hit now um that that style uh, i don't know i mean i i like it but i could see how that would be a very grating film and you know certainly if you don't like ryan o'neill or barbara streisand you're getting, you know that's a big hurdle yeah I,
0: well. I i i i kind of like ryan o'neill I, I he's he's charming and honestly i think the <laughs> again weird first experience i think the first movie i saw with him maybe might have been zero effect which I thought he was very good in Zero Effect. I think that's a criminally underrated movie.
2: Oh, I love Zero Effect. Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, and that's that's still the best movie that Jake Kasdan has made, and I that kind of he, he kind of like got my hopes up after that movie, and kind of has never really um, met my uh, expectations f- yeah. for sub- subsequent films. But you know, uh, speaking of Ryan O'Neill, I yeah. I, I just think. Peter Bogdanovich's second masterpiece comes in the form of a road trip con artist comedy with a very simple story, just an energy that doesn't let up, and it's one of the very best child performances I've ever seen. It really is. Um, I love con man movies, I love road trip stories, and in fact, it's funny like, my favorite scene in Midnight Run involves mm-hmm. Charles Grodin try to con, trying to con a bartender into giving him counterfeit bills for evidence. Um, so it's like, let's, do, let's just combine both of those movies for me, and I'll be very happy. But this feels like a, 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 some kind of you know, pre-code Preston Sturgis
2: movie. And we should say the title is Paper Moon.
0: <laughs> I always do that. <laughs> I build it up and I'm like, "Oh, that's right. Paper Moon, everybody." Yes. Um if you're following along on Wikipedia, <laughs> but no, seriously, this is uh this is just beat for beat um much like the last picture show. It's it's I don't I don't I can't think of anything I don't like or a moment that, "Oh, you should have cut that," or, you know, this was done too much. I think that you know, it's a three-act kind of a movie where, you know, that they meet and they go on the road then they wind up meeting up with Madeline Kahn, who's amazing in this. Yeah. And they go to the hotel. There's a set piece at the hotel. And then they try to swindle um, this bootlegger. So, I mean, it's like it's got these really well-constructed acts of different things taking place with these two yeah. characters.
2: Well, I think that's also... Uh He's following he's he's following the guide of the novel Addie Prey uh, in terms of giving him a structure. Because when I think about Bogdanovich and plot, I think that a lot of his best films for me are hangout movies. They're like something like Saint Jack or Texasville, or I mean, uh, to some extent, they, they all laughed. Like the plots are really secondary to the appeal. It's just hmm. how the characters interact. I think, and Paper Moon. I mean, it is a character-driven comedy, but it's also, it's so efficiently plotted. Like, it, it, it yeah. has momentum to it. Um, I could see some people feeling this is where he peaks. my
1: money too, you know, $200 belongs to me, and don't you forget that. You want it? Well, just put my share in my pocket and I'll take you to a train station. How do you like that? Get the map, find out where the nearest depot is
2: trouble anyway. First you
1: charge too much, then you want to give it away. Where are we now? We just left Plainville. $12 for a Bible. Then it's up to $24. If I stay with you, I'll spend the rest of my life in jail. There's a depot in Lincoln. You can take me to Lincoln. You bet I will. Where's Lincoln? Clear over there. Oh, boy. You think I'm going to take you clear over there just to get you to some depot? Then keep going. We'll hit one in Sylvan Grove. Where's Sylvan Grove? Right here. Well, that, that'll take us down through Lucas. You gotta go through something to get this over. I am not complaining, I'm just saying that'll take you through Lucas. You gotta go through Paradise and Waldo and Marie and Hooray, Lucas huh? if you wanna get this overgrown. Well, those are pretty good towns in there. We could do some business in there. Well, it won't matter much. We need to out of Bibles anyway. What do you mean we're out of Bibles? Why didn't you tell me we're out of Bibles? You might get in the box too, don't you? Oh, you know, you've got an excuse for everything. Could you blame me for it? If everything? we were running out of Bibles, you should have told me we were running out of Bibles. Well, we're running out of Bibles. Well, then we gotta get This new is
2: one. just great entertainment. Um. Yeah, and I think that this—I mean, as far as like the the '70s films that are trying to evoke old Hollywood, I feel like this one um, feels the most like a classic from that period. Like, it doesn't feel like a '70s film at all.
0: <laughs> no, it, it sort of lacks that self-awareness this time, and it, it just—it doesn't. But it also doesn't feel like, uh, you know, he's pandering to, you know, the the fans of these types of screw all comedies and. You know, there's, uh, there is some melancholy here, obviously, with, with, with Addie and just, you know, her going through this tremendous loss. And she rarely smiles in this movie. Yeah. But And it's also, it's also weird just to watch this movie knowing the future history of what Ryan O'Neill, uh, particularly Tatum O'Neill, has gone through with addiction and just poor relationship choices and not having a very good relationship with her father. Right. Um, so I mean, it's just it's interesting to watch, knowing that. But I also think it's it's got some really beautiful compositions. Um, is this on Blu-ray?
2: I think that it is. Okay, I think, I think that it is
0: because it's really. I, I just some of the some some of his like that we mentioned with the you know the the John Ford movie in in the background. I think that the the early scene in the train station or where they're having um, dinner together or lunch together, and it's just. It's really well a really well composed movie, without calling attention to itself. It's just like this is the perfect shot for this perfect moment.
2: Well, it's funny because Bogdanovich is definitely a student of Howard Hawks in that he does not like typically does not like films that are like self consciously beautiful looking or self consciously calling you know attention to to their uh, visual style. Um, He allows for that in Paper Moon. Um, It's it's a great looking film. And it's beautifully Be lit
0: by just natural sunlight, I think.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's him at the height of his powers as far as being able to do whatever he wanted. I mean, do you know the story with the director's company? I don't. So Paramount had this idea putting together Francis Coppola, Peter Bogdanovich, and William Friedkin into this thing called the director's company hmm. um, where they all got a ch- share of one another's profits and they all were given three three million dollars with no questions to make whatever they wanted but they were encouraged to make commercial films so bogdanovich made paper moon which was a hit coppola made the conversation which was critically acclaimed but not a hit and then bogdanovich made daisy miller which was not a hit friedkin never made anything but coppola and uh (laughs) friedkin both got uh what like I don't know. They got like I forget how much money they got off Paper Moon, but they both got like a big chunk of change from Bogdanovich's hit, and like that. Wow, that kind of d- created like a divisiveness in the group, and it it, it splintered like pretty <laughs> early on. No kidding. But but it sounded like a similar setup to the BBS thing, where it's like, yeah, you're the artist. Here's the money, no questions. Give us a hit. <laughs> Um, so I don't know, had, had, uh, the conversation and Daisy Miliband hits, had they, you know, would have, they, if they would all have just made that into a thing. Cause I know they were trying to court Kubrick and Mike Nichols to join it also. Oh boy. Um, it's funny. There's never been an equivalent thing that I know of since then, but that was the director centric seventies and those were all big guns at that point in their careers. It
0: seemed like maybe Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez could have done something like that. You know, because they work to—I mean—they work together so much. they you know they're such good friends, starting from maybe from *Dust Till Dawn* or *Desperado*. Even yeah, I feel I feel like they could have done something like that, like a, a director's collective where they sort of collaborate on each other's films and put and just work together. Yeah, uh, but it didn't really
2: happen. I think the Mumblecore scene might have been the closest, but yeah, uh, yeah, and and Baumbach and Wes Anderson have a friendship that. Extends professionally, also, but yeah, nothing like that, and I think that the egos of everyone involved that's that 's something we should bring up <laughs> ego and bogdanovich because oh yeah, he's famously he 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 took to success in a very bad way in terms of his uh arrogance um, he was somebody that uh, saw himself as inter inter the tradition of the people he used to interview, like he saw himself. Not competing with Coppola and Scorsese and Rafelson and Altman. He saw himself as like competing with Hitchcock and Hawks and Ford and Capra. He (laughs) saw himself as one of those guys. He did not have that friendship with the movie brats. Like, he was a competitor, but he also just th- felt that like he was better <laughs> and was, you know, on talk shows, name-dropping, you know, all of his celebrity friends and pushing Sybil Shepherd into the public eye. And he produced a Cole Porter cover album <laughs> for her called uh, Sybil Shepherd Does It... Sybil well, Does It to Cole Porter, rehearsing <laughs> <laughs> Cole Porter. Like, he he was just... He was on The Tonight Show as the host. Like, he was a big star, but he was a really... Obno- like... We was sometimes he? think about Tarantino like being kind of an obnoxious celebrity in the, in the initial post-Pulp Fiction era, yeah. but Bogdanovich really took it to the max. Yeah, and I was think he that, one of the
0: first, really, to... Like, you know, everybody knew what this director looked like.
2: Yeah, yeah he, he was director as star. Right. Um, in a way... That, I mean, Hitchcock obviously was, and Capra was, but, like, I, not... Uh, of that generation, Bogdanovich was the first big star and uh but he was he was so obnoxious and mean to people and arrogant that when um the films started getting uh bad reviews they got the meanest reviews you could imagine because hmm. he's a former critic and so all the critics saw him as you know that could have been me maybe or uh or he would discount the impact yeah. of critics saying well they you know those who can't do it criticize what i do but you know <laughs>
0: I should make a list of yeah, film critics that became directors at some point. Well, we've uh, talked
2: about one already because we talked about Paul, Paul Schrader. Schrader.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just think that's really interesting when that happens.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, but it, but uh, but yeah, but Paper Moon was the last hit he had uh, until Mask.
0: <laughs> wow, that's um, that's really amazing. I mean, obviously, you can see why this was such a huge hit and why Tatum O'Neill won an Oscar. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, and plus the, the really nice satisfying ending that's also not like so overly sentimental. It's very understated and that's what I love about it. Like it's It's moving, but it's not, you know, raise the score. They smile at each other and run into each other's arms, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah, no. And in to Bogdanovich's mind, it's even a little ambiguous as to whether or not it's a completely happy ending. It's just where it ends on an up note. <laughs> but, yeah. You know, which, again, that still feels like a happy ending when you're watching it. But I mean, that, that has a great chase scene. That has great mm-hmm. physical comedy. That has hilarious one-liners. Um, like, it's not just a cute, wisecracking kid movie at all. Like, it's, it, if anything, it's like the film that, I mean, Bad News Bears. Like, there's a handful of films that, like, Deal with cute kids saying outrageous things, but it, but they're also like legitimately smart and have guts to them, and you know this is one of those <laughs> for sure. You know, and then
0: uh, Bill Lancaster would go on to write, uh, you know, Bad News Bears with Tatum O'Neill.
2: <laughs> oh well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Which is
0: pretty pretty amazing. You know, she got well, involved sh- with those those types of movies and really stood out in both cases. Uh, yeah. So let's move on because I think most people know that Paper Moon is a masterpiece. Because yeah. I haven't seen the next three, so if you okay. can go through those briefly, sure, I'll go through them real quickly. They were so, I mean, they were
2: hard to find. Well, so here's here's the thing. Uh, so among films like he didn't make, there's a, there's a whole bunch he didn't make. One of them around this period, I, get, I guess it would have been right after What's Up, Doc, but it it fell apart. Uh, was a film called The Streets of Laredo. Hmm. This would have been would have been a western. Here's the cast: John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart. Henry Fonda. Wow. Um, written by Larry McMurtry. Wow. <laughs> and he had he had buy-in from... I don't know about Fonda, but he had Stewart. But then John Ford talked Wayne out of doing it. And so they pulled the plug on it. Um, that later became adapted into a Pulitzer Prize winning novel called Lonesome Dove. <laughs> that <Huh>. plot. <laughs> so, you know, that could have been... That could have been like his real shot at a masterpiece you never know i mean it could have been a mess but that that was the big what if of that period for him i mean he turned down chinatown he turned down the exorcist he turned down the godfather um he turned down actually um much earlier he turned down the leone film uh duck you sucker it's also known as fistful of dynamite back in the 60s um so he turned down a lot of things that who knows what he would have made of them i mean his sensibility is so far removed from polanski or coppola Let alone freakin', but um, so he made and he almost made uh, Ramblin' Rose also. Considering we've talked about Laura Dern, no
0: kidding, (laughs) Um, Directors Club. Yeah, that was something he
2: almost did, and of course, I can see that
0: working out pretty well.
2: Yeah, I mean that would have been that would have been him and Sybil doing that rather than Daisy Miller, which is this uh, Henry James novella that he adapted, in which the first commercial misfire. Um, it originally was something that he had offered Orson Welles to direct with him and Sybil Shepard playing the lead parts, which would have made people even crazier um, because, you know, they they, they were just uh, this kind of obnoxious celebrity couple at that period. But it was funny because, like, I saw Daisy Miller kind of warily thinking it would be this real stodgy period piece. It's not. It's 90 minutes, it zips along, and it's got a lot of fast paced verbal comedy to it. Um,. It's an attractive-looking film, and it feels like the one that is most ripe for rediscovery because it's 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 pretty good. I think that that it's I don't know what to say about it. It's it's about like a um, this kind of stuffy expat living uh, in, in Europe. I forget uh, if it's if it's Italy, but he he meets Sybil Shepherd, who's this kind of uh, unsophisticated but wild and flirty American girl, and. He keeps misreading her signals and thinks that she's very promiscuous and not very ladylike and doesn't Mm -hmm. understand what she's about, doesn't understand that she's kind of an innocent and ultimately it ends in tragedy. Um, It's got a lot... uh, Yeah, it's got a lot that's funny about it. It looks great. Um, It's made with the assurance of somebody that's coming off of his third hit. Um, But it... Yeah, it didn't connect with people. Um, At Long Last Love is like the big fiasco of his career and it's an interesting fiasco because it's shot... It's shot in like a black and white in color color palette, so it's like it's very um, like it's it's very, like it's all blacks, whites, and grays in terms of the color palette to the film, even though it's shot in color. Um, it's a uh, throw. It's a it's a kind of a throwback to a certain kind of like 1930s musical where everyone's singing live uh, and everyone's mic'd. Um, so it's trying to evoke kind of almost like a uh, I don't know if it was like Lubitsch musical, but like it it the problem with it is that. First off, everybody really hated these guys by this point, you know hated sh- the the bogdanovich sibyl Shepherd relationship and what it's hmm. i think what it's you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of um uh everyone says i love you the uh, woody Allen musical oh, where it's right, like which it's I a like. lot of fame which I love but yeah. it's like a lot of famous people that can't really sing and dance singing and dancing like that's the joke, but I think that at long last love. People just said, good, they can't even sing and dance. It's a total disaster." And it's actually kind of a, it's a fast-moving, sweet movie, and it's it's a light entertainment. I, I some of it doesn't work, but I think it's if it's a mess, it's an interesting one, and I think it's pretty entertaining for what it is. I think it's I don't know, uh, it's not one I could really like say that you need to go seek out, but it does have a Blu-ray release, and it's also a film that was recut. Um, what happened was there were so many different versions of it, Long Last Love, and they put it out there. It flopped horribly. And then someone at the studio recut it themselves, like adding stuff that Bogdanovich cut out Hmm. um, and cutting things that Bogdanovich left in. And then that version... Was in circulation and then wound up on Netflix streaming. Bogdanovich saw it on Netflix and was like, "This isn't my movie. What? What? What is? I, this is actually better than what I made." And uh, wow. <laughs> and actually, the guy that recut it has since passed away. Like, didn't even realize that he basically recut at Long Last Love to such a degree that Bogdanovich was actually. Kind of pleased with it, and signed off on a home video release of that version, but I think there's like a i think there's multiple cuts in circulation of that film still that seems to be um, the
0: case with a lot of his movies and again, another director that just has to put out- de- definitive versions and director's cuts of the majority of his uh filmography
2: yeah i I had a list of how many it it was eight films. Of his exist in more than one version. Wow.
0: Yeah, I can't. I, I don't know if I've seen the thing called Love Director's
2: cl- Cut yet. I have. Um, it's it's subtle differences. Okay. Um, the, um, Nickelodeon was the last of the '70s. Um, well, Saint Jack is technically '79, but like Nickelodeon feels like the end of this chapter of Bogdanovich's career. It's it's the one that is uh, basically it, it's a. Um, it's set in like the early days of motion pictures, um, early silent shorts being made, and it's kind of at the time when there was a war between Hollywood studios and independent filmmakers, um, to the point where like there were actually people hired to like shoot out the cameras. Like it was like <laughs> it was like a war between filmmakers with guns, <laughs> and um, huh. but it's it's a uh, it's a. It it kind of rounds up a lot of his old you know gang of actors like it has Ryan O'Neill it has Tatum O'Neal, has Burt Reynolds who was in At Long Last Love. Um, it's it's got John Ritter who he wanted to cast as the lead, but he wasn't famous yet because Three's Company was still to come. Um, but it's it it has that kind of like sweet nostalgic kind of screwball. It has a feel of something like Paper Moon or What's Up Doc. Like oh. it's it's you know it, it has like that kind of like fast ragtimey kind of music and physical comedy and and uh, screwball dialogue. It's not it's not as um and it has like a certain kind of melancholy feel to it too. Um, he was forced to shoot it in color, but he lit it for black and white so that the director's cut that exists now is actually. Uh, a black and white version of it. All the, oh, both nice. are on, both are on the DVD, um, but it's better in black and white. I watched both versions, um, and uh, it's it's stronger in black and white. It feel it, it evokes the period better. Um, but it, it's funny because like as much as it's like nodding to Hawks and to Ford and to Sturges and Cukor and whatever, it's it's also nodding back to Bogdanovich. Like there's um, huh. suitcase mix-ups. There's a sniper scene. There's a love <laughs> triangle with two men and one woman. You know, Ryan, at one point, someone's like, you know, calling out the name Daisy at One point, and phrases like picture show get tossed around a lot. Like it's it feels like I don't know how much of it is self-conscious or not, but it feels like a tribute to himself as much as to the old masters, well, which might have been one more reason why people got upset about it, although it's not really something you read about in the r- reviews of it. I, I wouldn't but, put it past him to make a
0: self-congratulatory movie. <laughs> you yeah. know, and it's, and I wouldn't find, I'd find that charming. I don't
2: know. Yeah. Well, it's also an extension of the film criticism in a way, because it's like, um, a lot of the scenes in it are anecdotes told to him by people like John Ford or uh, Alan Dwan. So it has, um, it's just an affectionate, you know, summing up of, of, you know, his movie, ver you know, visually, uh, capturing, uh, film history. Um, hmm. it. It also might rub certain viewers a little bit not in the wrong way because it, it definitely like celebrates the birth of a nation in a way that might make people uneasy because birth of a nation is obviously most famous for being a racist film. Yeah. Um, but it was hmm. also this groundbreaking. Um, I mean, it's the first blockbuster. Uh, if you just for inflation, it might still be the biggest blockbuster. I don't know. I mean, invented all sorts of cinematic techniques, but it's obviously most famous for being this pro KK you know kkk thing um, and the way that birth of a nation comes off in it i mean it's aware of its own it's aware it's it's aware of the ugliness of what it's you know saying about the clan but it also at the same time is moving the you know the cast to tears at the end of the film so that might <laughs> that might play a little weird to some people
0: um, that's fascinating it, yeah i mean it's almost like when you mention this is him going back to you know like uh, the the birth of film I thought of what Scorsese did with Hugo, and just sure. like making that as like a love letter to just the old where it all began, essentially. Yeah. So I, I could see yeah. him pulling this off yeah, quite well. It's,
2: I, I think I think the Daisy Miller, Long Last Love, and Nickelodeon are all interesting films that all they aim for light entertainment. Like that's a thing. Like that's good. Last Last Picture Show is actually a much heavier, artier film than any of his flops. Um, these are all aiming for something much more light and escapist. Um, hmm. but it, but yeah it, and it it I don't know if it was like a huge bomb but it was perceived as a third flop in the row and that he disappeared from the uh directing for a couple of years and just recharged his batteries and then came back with a really different feel with Saint Jack. Oh
0: my god. Yeah his the next two movies in his filmography are among the most fascinating and it, it makes complete sense why there's a documentary about They All Laughed and an entire book dedicated to St. Jack because they they have such incredible stories behind the making of them and you're, you're watching them like I don't think they're perfect Not, neither one of them. I don't think they're perfect like yeah. I know that Tarantino put They All Laughed in his top 10 of all time or something but I feel like both of them might suffer just a little bit from pacing, like there's there's some lulls here and there for for both films. I feel, but not in a way that like made me horribly restless and kind of like checking my watch. It was just, I think you could have trimmed this scene, or like, you know, not nothing major, right. but I, th- I I think like with Saint Jack, especially since I knew that you know Robbie Mueller, is that yeah. How you yeah, Robbie Mueller, Mueller as the cinematographer. I just knew like the opening scene, I was, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to love this," because <laughs> it looks so gorgeous, But it's fascinating to think like he had a local amateur cast and crew working alongside, you know just these am- amazing talents from Europe, like Robbie Mueller, but yeah. also just shooting in a place like Singapore. It's the, it, and it remains like the only Hollywood movie to be shot entirely on location there. Which is really interesting choice.
3: what I do, Jack? Are you selling smack to these kids. Smack?
0: Heroin. No, no,
1: Jack. Yeah, I catch you selling heroin. You're out on your ass. <laughs> A minute there, uh, I thought you were going to ask me to kill him. You're not that desperate, are you? Ah, some people, when they're desperate, they think about suicide. Me, I'm different. I think about murder. I
3: ain't gonna give nobody
1: nothing about my jelly roll, jelly roll. I ain't gonna get you again. not even to save your soul. My mama said it's dead when
3: she went away. I think good. I mean,
0: Gazzara is like so good at this like world weariness, but almost like okay with that. Like he's just, he's kind of, he's kind of nonchalant and suave, but he's also, you could, there's an underlying sadness to both of his characters, um, you know, in St. Jack and Killing of a Chinese Bookie. I mean, I think it's more prevalent in Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Here, yeah. here, here there's a little bit more joy in the environment that he's chosen to build his niche in.
2: Yeah. Well, it's funny because watching it, it reminds me, when you talk about Robbie Mueller, in a way it reminds me of when Scorsese started working with Fassbender's DP, Michael Ballhaus, on After Hours, when it felt like Scorsese was like at like a low point in his career like after Last Temptation of Christ fell apart and King of Comedy hadn't been well-received at all. Um, but then he just had to dust himself off, hired, you know, a, a rising young, uh, you know, uh, experienced, uh, foreign film camera, cameraman, and, you know, just went back to basics and made something quick down and dirty and, you know, efficient, like none of the excess that the Hollywood films prior were starting to amass. And Bogdanovich, it feels like the same thing. It's, it feels like, you know, cause he, he, he approached, um, I don't know if it's Paramount. He pro- he approached Hollywood with St. Jack, and they wanted a star. Uh, and he's like, no, I want Gazara. And so he went back to Corman to make it with less money but total control. Um, Executive
0: produced by Hugh Hefner, of all people.
2: Do you know the story behind that? No. So <laughs> Playboy that took Playboy took... Frames from a print of Last Picture Show of Sybil Shepherd topless and put them in the magazine. Uh,
0: all right.
2: And okay. So, so there was like this extended legal battle between Sybil Shepherd, egged on by Bogdanovich, and Playboy. Right. And Playboy owned Paul Thoreau's novel, Saint Jack, which they originally <laughs> wanted. They originally wanted Orson Welles to direct it with Jack Nicholson. And, 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 Nich- and Nicholson was said yes to to it, but then Orson Welles changed his mind and wanted Dean Martin and yeah. you know they it, it was just like yeah it, it, and it just kind of like fell apart from there i mean i don't know orson wells could be kind of a mm-hmm. character um but so bogdanovich decided to do it himself i think even sybil shepherd did a pass at a draft of saint jack if i'm not mistaken um uh, although i mean it was like being written even just during the shoot like i mean it feels like a film that was like like a, you know being written on the fly. I mean, to to its credit in a oh, way. Sure. It feels like, it feels like very spontaneous even though it's a it's not an improvised film. It's one of those
0: um, movies again I use this word a lot, but it feels very organic. <laughs> it just feels like uh, again another uh, you know wearing on its sleeve hanging out kind of movie that yeah. I really enjoy. As long as I enjoy the character or or you know even some of the side characters here. Um and then, like you know we get we get to this really interesting point in the film where he is filming somebody to blackmail if I'm not mistaken, yes, that is great uh any sort of like injection of voyeurism or just uh you know trying to get information or capture information to uh um, get ahead of somebody I always love that touch yeah so
2: yeah it's it's a very uh it's very devoid of sentimentality. It's very devoid of a predictable beat-by-beat story construct. It feel, it feel I mean, you are talking about it like it feeling like a pacing thing, uh, as far as like they're being just maybe a little too generous with the with the downtime between yeah. events. But um, I don't know. It, it's one of those films. They all act it the same way. Where rewatching it, it, it that matters less because you are just returning to the to the atmosphere and the vibe. Saint Jack sure. might be the most. The most vibe, like atmosphere, heavy Bogdanovich film. Like it feels like the one that is the most about its location and just get it, giving you a sense of this character walking around this city. Um,
0: yeah, I mean they and, all left. Obviously, still has the, the screwball element and many many scenes where people are, you know, talking very fast. And yeah, I don't find I don't find I don't find that a problem. Not at all. Yeah, well,
2: well, they all left. is interesting because it feels like it injects the old Bogdanovich into the post Saint Jack like uh, lessons learned. (laughs) Yeah, you know what I mean. Like it's like let's let's bring Mueller and Gazara back to New York and try it again, but use Manhattan and then but. I mean, do you have anything? Do you, do you want to you transition to They All After? Is it more that we should say about St. Jack?
0: Well, I just think that it's an interesting companion piece to Killing of a Chinese Bookie. And I think even on the Cassavetes episode, uh, Zach Petante said, Well, if you love <laughs> Gazzara and this, see St. Jack. Um, oh, yeah. And I just think, like, he is such a great actor. I can see why it's like, you know, maybe years later people like Todd Salans or the Cohen brothers um just sought him out even if it's just for a very small role because he's such a memorable presence and for him to carry a movie like this and just enjoy spending time with him even if it is kind of aimless, it's it's just always interesting, always.
2: Yeah. And and working for Corman again, it's also the most sexual film he's made. Very true. Know, since, since, uh, I mean, he, he's, he's, <laughs> I don't know if that's like just him being faithful to the novel or making concessions to Corman's idea of what, a you know, sells, <laughs> sells tickets. <laughs> but, uh, it, it definitely has the most, um, friendly attitude towards, uh, transgender. What could be seen as, well, and, but, well, I was going to say like a potentially sleazy subject matter. Sure. Um, uh, it's, yeah. it's funny cause that, um, his last film is inspired by some uh some of his behavior um during the making of Saint Jack he was seeing a lot of prostitutes uh for research and oh. uh, for other reasons and um but he was paying them to leave the profession <laughs> um right. according to legend oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's what yeah that's that's the uh the hook of of uh she's funny that way
0: <laughs> maybe that's what Travis Bickle should have done Get 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 like thirty thousand dollars and just pay. Um, I can't remember Jodie Foster's character. But doesn't name. he give her the money to leave? I don't know. She does he? I don't remember. That. Yeah, he
2: does. I think he does. Do that? Oh, taxi okay. Driver. Wow. See, I feel like yeah. there's all
0: this like just interconnectivity going on with this
2: group of filmmakers at the time. Yeah. It well, it, well, like so, it. well. Saint Jack. So St. Jack was, like, a critical comeback. You know, it it got festival attention. It got critical attention. Like, people that were done kicking him around, they, they, they found a new man with, with St. Jack. And it, 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 if it didn't reestablish him commercially, it reestablished his reputation. Um, so then he goes to New York to do They All Laughed. And what one thing he said probably in many interviews, that uh, one of the things he loved about the Hollywood studio system is that because everyone was under contract, uh, writers could write to those personality types. Like, they could write to those actors knowing Hmm. their voice, knowing their cadences, like knowing them as people to uh, design the best characters for them to play. And they all laughed is that way like it's written for the cast um it's written for Audrey Hepburn. It's written for gazara it's written for calling camp it's written for you know uh even even that uh i forget her name that that model that plays the taxi driver like everybody is somebody oh, from she's so good patty ha- hansen patty hansen yeah yeah um and um uh, like john ritter like everybody uh is written f- to you know The the, the characters are written for them. So... And there's a lot coming from their own personalities. Like, Colleen Camp... Supposedly, that's the closest to Colleen Camp of any part that she's played. I mean, it might be a heightened screwball comedy version of it, but that tone... That's Colleen Camp... Yeah. Um... You know, in a way, it's almost kind of like her Annie Hall. I mean, she's a supporting character, but it's a, it's written with such affection by a former lover for this for this woman to give her a real vehicle to be a star because she's you know a sex, she was a sex exploitation movie vet, like she was in the Swinging Cheerleaders and Death Game and things like that. Like she has a bit part as a Playboy Bunny in Apocalypse Now, but I I wonder if if the performance she gives in They All Laughed is what opened the doors for things like Valley Girl or even you know playing the mom and things like Election. Um, cause she had like a, uh, she's never really g- crossed over as a big Hollywood star, but I mean, this is, you know, no fault of hers. I mean, she's, uh, you know, she steals the movie, I think.
0: Yeah, no, she should, she, she should have become a big star.
1: we go now, Charles. Just relax, honey. Isn't that song
0: nice? Very nice.
1: Feel my finger? Yes, of course. Good. Just concentrate on feeling it. Feel my finger? Say it, Charles. Yes. Close your eyes, darling, and feel my finger. Feel my finger? Yes. Feel my finger? Yes. Feel my finger? Yes. Feel my finger? Chrissy, I really don't think I can... I feel there's a lot of pressure here. Feel my finger? Yes, I feel it, but...
0: I think of this movie as probably... And it's probably because I saw the documentary. It feels like the most personal film he's made. Because he's trying to reflect in the moment what everybody, not only in the cast, but just in real life and throughout New York, what relationships are um, basically going through at the same time, like just how people are interacting with one another, and you know he, he had the failed relationship with Sybil Shepherd, he had his eye on um, Dorothy, yep yeah, Dorothy Stratton. Um and so I mean I think they were together at this point but it's it's still really just again one of those movies too that has this air of melancholy it's almost like a screwball dramedy
2: <laughs> yeah well it it has a very bittersweet feeling yeah. to it I mean even before I mean do you, I mean I I as you as you know from seeing that documentary like Gazzara was going through real depression at that point and it like he carries I mean there's a heavy heartedness to his whole performance. And, you know, you can't, this is one of those films where, like, you can't, like, once you know the background of it, it becomes very hard to unlearn that. But it, it informs the film in a very interesting way, like the way that, um, so he, he's romantically involved with Audrey Hepburn in the film. And they had a romance that was already over by the right. time that shooting started. So there's a, there's a bittersweet quality to their courtship in the film. And then Dorothy Stratton, the fact that she's being kind of spied on. It's written into the plot, but it's also tr- horribly ironic because she was being spied on by Paul Snyder's detective. <laughs> uh, Paul Snyder yeah, being the estranged right. husband that murdered her <laughs> right after yeah. the shoot. Um, and John Ritter is essentially playing Peter Bogdanovich. Totally. I mean, the glasses are the giveaway. Right. Um, but it, 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 so it has like this undercurrent of, of sadness playing off of this very free-spirited, very sexy kind of light comedy. I think that that's... When I think about like someone like Wes Anderson getting something out of Bogdanovich's films that I could identify in his own work, it must be that blending of, of tragic and light comedy tones. Um, that must be... And also the fact that, like, I know he says this in the interview with Bogdanovich on the DVD, but, like, how everybody just meets and instantly becomes friends. Like, there's no villains in it, really. It's just everybody interacting in a very... Very friendly version of New York City. <laughs>
0: yeah, very, very loose and just matter of fact. But it's also grounded again in just, um, not, I, I'm like just, just this open purity about everybody where you know they're sort of um, coming to terms with their flaws or how they failed in relationships, and it's a movie about infatuation too really and how all-consuming it can be whether if you're infatuated with the past or infatuated with somebody beautiful that you've just seen for the first time and you you know that that's i I feel like most i mean it it does feel more like a a, you know from the male gaze obviously yeah but then you have you know like fully realized female characters like colleen camp especially in this
2: well, I think it's very affectionate towards all the female characters, like having their own control over the situation.
0: Right. It's not creepy, like creepy no. stalker. It seems like it's that way um, early on, especially with with how John Ritter is, uh, you know, just like kind of eyeing her. Sure. But but you know, it's it doesn't go the De Palma territory where it's it becomes um, you know the the word not insidious, but a different word. I'm trying to think of where it's... It,
2: it has a very relaxed attitude towards promiscuity and infidelity. Also, like everybody is just sleeping yeah. with everybody, and there's no real judgment or even repercussions of it, other than just a sense of loss when things don't work out.
0: You can you can imagine all these characters going to a key party. You, uh-huh. could. <laughs> you could.
2: Well, in in a way, I mean, it feels a little. It feels like, I mean, Woody Allen would have already done Annie Hall in Manhattan, but it feels like yeah. it feels like a shaggier cousin to what Woody Allen was up to. You know, would continue to be up. I mean, as far as like just being a uh, a a film that's in love with New York and a film that's uses very uh, not unexpected music choices because it's scored with country music and and Frank Sinatra numbers that are all taken from the trilogy album. Which um, I don't know if you if you have any listeners that are fans of uh, you must remember this the trilogy album from Sinatra gets its own episode at one point. Um, mm. but, but it's, yeah, it's all these Sinatra songs and, uh, and country music, <laughs> you know, which neither one feel, I mean, Sinatra feels like New York, but country music sure doesn't. And, um, I don't know, it, it's, I, I've, I've read that it's, you know, some people feel like it's easy to overrate it because of all this kind of, um, surrounding stuff. Like it's a very personal film and it has this kind of tragic, uh, aspect to it that, I mean, you know, the story of, you know, famously, like, uh, after after the murder, the studio got cold feet on the distribution of it, and Bogdanovich went. Uh, he spent five million dollars of, of his own money right. distributing it. And, it. and it didn't work out. <laughs> yeah, no, he lost his shirt. He I mean, it, it, he took the Cassavetes influence, you know, and like, and, you know, because uh, Cassavetes famously, you know, self-distributed things like Woman on the Influence, but he also lost his shirt time and time again, which is why he kept doing movies as an actor that weren't mm-hmm. really what he would like to do. Bogdanovich didn't have that option. So he became um, homeless. So more, He's been bankrupt more than once. <laughs> that's so sad to know, like... I mean, obviously, I realize just
0: because you're making great art, you could be a painter, you could be a musician, you could be a filmmaker, or you can be a writer, and still be flat broke after success. You know, yeah. I've heard that time and time again, and it's just like, well, that's that's the reality of capitalism. <laughs> but, you know, I think... When you're putting out this type of work, you can still you can still walk around with your head high. I think, and I, I just I found this movie to be real. I, I want to watch it again for sure because it, the, the the just knowing the reality and having the experience of watching the documentary before seeing the movie also informed my experience of it. I also kind of wonder what would it have been like if I hadn't watched the documentary first.
2: Yeah, um, I saw it I saw it because I knew a girl that was obsessed with Audrey Hepburn years ago and she had videotapes of every Audrey Hepburn movie in her bedroom. Wow. And I knew the title but I never cuz you know I was aware of Bogdanovich cuz of the last picture show, but I never had seen it and I she let me borrow her copy of the videotape of They All Laughed. I don't remember what's different about that cut cuz hmm. the DVD version is a new cut that he prepared. Um, But I saw the theatrical cut of They All Laughed and I liked it. Um, I thought, you know, I'd seen Colleen Camp in the exploitation films that she did, so I just thought, oh, how great that she's, you know, this kind of, like, Gene Arthur type or whatever. Like, she's, you know, this great screwball comedian. Um, But I didn't think much other than just, like, oh, that's... I'm surprised, uh, you know, I didn't know more about that film because it seemed, like, real likable. And then when the DVD came out and it had the rave review from Tarantino on the box and the Wes Anderson interview, and I'm like... Should give that another chance. I remember really liking it, and then it's just one of those films that, like last picture show. The more times you watch it, the more it's like his Jackie Brown. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, totally. You, no, that's a you great did, point. And which is probably what you know, what Tarantino. Uh, it's it, you, you like just hanging out with those characters in that world, and it's the fact that it has that edge of darkness. You know, in the in the margins of it, adds an element that it gives it. It gives it more heaviness than I think. A typical, you know, witty rom-com would have, um, exactly. and that's—I think—that's part of the attraction too. That, that, that undercurrent that cuts away the sweetness of it. Like, I mean, some of the comedy I think is a little silly in it. I mean, I don't think it's a perfect film, but it's a film that I have a hard time not feeling immense affection for because of the number of scenes that feel really uh, perfect in it.
0: Didn't he, didn't he say that when he showed this? M- I don't know if it was at a screening or a preview. Um, people cried at the end when they saw Dorothy Stratton's name or something. I, I don't know. They had, like, some sort of spontaneous reaction. Or no, Maybe they were just, like, dead silent or something.
2: Well, well Tarantino, um, in the documentary, uh, oh, right. he, 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 he had said that, like, everybody was just totally laughing and engaged in this film. And then you, you see her credit, and you just remember, oh, wait, she's dead. And right. it just immediately sucks the joy out of the room when you remember this tragedy. Um,
0: yeah, that's it's such a it's it's such an odd feeling to experience um, watching the movie, and it's it's not a bad thing at all. It's just it's such a different. You're watching it through this filter almost, and you're kind of it's like it's hard to process, you know, just knowing the reality. Yeah. Um, while you're watching, you know, this courtship or this screwball tone going at the same time, I think they work together very well. It's not to say, like, you know, that the tones don't mesh or anything.
2: Well, depending on where you are in your life romantically, you can either, like, enjoy John Ritter's, like, you know, almost, like, stalkery fantasy of, like, pursuing a girl and having her fall in love with you kind of romance. Or you can sympathize more with... Uh, heavy-hearted Gazara and like his kind of bittersweet courtship of of, of hepburn
0: and i fall in the middle
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: which is fine i think for my age it's like yeah i still have like the 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 romantic idealism kind of going but at the same time i'm a little cynical about relationships <laughs>
1: princess cards she sends me see to see her you gotta look hard wounded deep in battle i stand stuck like some soldier undaunted to her gesture smile i'll stand on fire all i ever wanted
2: i think he went bankrupt in 85 um after you know trying to self-distribute it and he also wrote a uh, this book about Dorothy Stratton as well, called "The Killing of, Un- Killing of the Unicorn," right. it had this like lengthy legal battle with Playboy that he ultimately had to throw out, and uh, basically, he was a destroyed guy. I mean, it's you know he he didn't want to make films anymore. But do you know the story about how, why he made Mask? I don't think
0: so. I, I was it, it covered in the documentary? It a little like- bit.
2: Well, well, uh, only in that like um, Dorothy Stratton had a real um, attraction to the story of the Elephant Man. That's because, right. right, because she felt like kind of freakish in the way that everyone would observe her because of her beauty. And she bought still the, felt
0: like she bought this book and gave it to him.
2: Yeah, and um, but like, but he remembered her affection for this story, and so. He saw some parallels with the story of Rocky Dennis, and right. so he decided to make this, again, every film has, like, this mythology behind it. He decided to make this to honor her memory uh, in a different way, rather than, like, you know, I mean, he tried to, you know, honor her memory by, like, making They All Laughed uh, into a hit, and he couldn't. So this was his next step, and... Boy, I mean, it's it. It might be it might be the film now that most people have seen of his. I, I think more people would have seen this than Last Picture Show or What's Up Doc or Paper Moon at this point.
0: It was definitely the first film of his I saw, I've seen and you know, it's also one of the earliest memories of me crying at the end of a movie. I mean, it probably goes E. T. Mask. And La Bamba, (laughs) as as, like being the triple feature, (laughs) as being like the first movies that made me feel overwhelming emotion. I mean, you can make the argument that you know La Bamba is very manipulative, and you know having the mom cry out his name and playing that beautiful sleepwalk song, anybody's gonna cry at that. But I just I don't know. I feel like this was this was my maybe my first experience of empathy to some degree, uh, seeing this in 1985 because. I mean the one thing I think remains consistent throughout all of his films is this tender, bittersweet humanity. He openly accepts people that are very flawed, um, and lets them and lets them be flawed on screen. But I think for the most part, most most of his characters are kind of pure of heart and more often than not have good intentions. I think I think Cher is terrific in this. Um yeah. but she's also by no means This angelic mother, she's, you know, an addict and clearly beaten down by her son's affliction, and um, but it portrays all of that without turning it into um, an after-school special,
2: right? No, it's that's and it could just as easily play that way in the wrong hands, right? I mean, it's it has that it has that that lived in relaxed feel to character and how dialogue seems play out, but it also does not have the same um, l- loose captured rough around the edges, improvised seeming feel of the Gazara films. Like it is definitely a lot more controlled and much, much more of like a, a of a professional studio job kind of film. Um, than than those films like it feels like in a way it feels a little bit more anonymous as a bogdanovich film than maybe some of the other ones but it it 's it 's just him being a good competent professional and trying to get the most out of that story um and he 's trying to still bring in his you know capturing it all in one take kind of i mean the, the, if you know to look for the little uh you know film grammar kind of touches of Bogdanovich you can find them in it especially in the director's cut which reinstates the uh, the Springsteen songs that were removed and we can get to that in a bit but the um... oh that's right yeah yeah well do you know the I mean the yeah the, the just he wanted to
0: use his particular Springsteen song right um, well no because what, what Rocky ha- De- that was Rocky Dennis's favorite
2: songwriter It's not, it's not just one it was, like, all Springsteen, pretty oh. much. I mean, I mean, well, it, 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 there's, like, some old rock and roll that Cher and the bikers listen to. But, it, it, I mean, it's got a bunch of Springsteen stuff. And Springsteen was fine with it. But this was right after Born in the USA. So getting a whole soundtrack full of Springsteen songs, even if they were from, you know... Uh, oh, yeah, they were from Born to Run in the River and, you know, they, up to Born in the USA. Because it takes place earlier. Uh, it takes place, like, in the... What was it? Like, 1979? I, I forget. But yeah. it... it but it, um, but yeah, the music rights were a problem, and they also recut the film slightly. They used used
0: use Bob Singer, Seger songs because I have this memory of him like getting into a tiff with um, with his mother, and then going to his room and blasting Catmandu by Bob Seger. Right, and I'm right, like, right. That doesn't really fit. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and so basically, even though Mask was kind of a smash, Bogdanovich was still so freaked out over the Dorothy Stratton thing that when they saw, when he saw the studio hurting his tribute film to her in any way, he freaked out and he sued Universal. <laughs> Um, for violation of, you know, his contract, because I, I don't know if he had final cut or what the deal was, but like, basically like he, right as the film was becoming a big success, he was in a nasty legal battle with Universal, which I think was professional suicide. Um, and it wasn't the era when you could make, you know, director's cuts on DVD or something like that. Like this was going to be the version that people saw for many years. I forget what year the DVD came out with the director's cut of mask, but he, um, yeah, he, he was very public about it. And ultimately, it was a public relations nightmare. He lost. And there was like a letter that um, all these different directors signed, like Scorsese and Woody Allen and Billy Wilder, um, to Universal, trying to get them to, you know, uh, honor his vision of the original f- film. But didn't happen. Wow. And um, so it's kind of like when we talk about Sam Peckinpah and Convoy and how Convoy was this like, big hit, but it basically still left him unemployable. <laughs> um Mask wasn't quite as extreme, but basically, he was just seen as a difficult person to work with in the business, and he was always famously kind of an asshole to people. So even with a hit, like he was just seen as is as, as difficult in a way that was not conducive to eighties Hollywood filmmaking. Um, but what, so he, I'm
0: I'm very curious going forward here because I feel like the last picture show is so perfect on its own, and the way it ends yeah. is just. I don't have a strong desire to know what's happened to all these people, but I'm, I know my curiosity is going to get the best of me and I know I'm going to see Texasville. Yeah. And according, ac- according to you, you, you're a fan. I know that I, I'm pretty sure Ebert was too. Um, but some, this, this film like, I don't know. It just didn't get the kind of acclaim, you know, that last no. picture show had.
2: No, no. and And, and in a nutshell, I mean, it's, it's a thankless task trying to recapture last picture show for any film. And it doesn't try. It doesn't really remake or restage last picture show at all. It has a different feeling entirely. Um, Like if that, if the original film is kind of a, um, this bittersweet coming of age story and sexual fumblings and, Black and white, and you know, death of innocence kind of thing. Texasville is like a midlife crisis comedy, <laughs> and it, re- it 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 pushes the focus onto Dwayne. It focuses on Jeff Bridges and his his marriage and his son being kind of like this town Casanova, and just like you know, everybody's in the town. Still kind of going through things. This is like set 1984. So it's still period, but it's, it's early eighties. It doesn't have the same, it doesn't have quite the same. I, mean, I don't know if anyone in 1990 was nostalgic for 1984, <laughs> the way that they might've been nostalgic for the fifties in 1971. Um, but it's, um, it's more of a comedy, but it's more of a like, it, but it's like a heavy hearted comedy, the way that they all laughed is like it has that feeling. Um, and that's actually to some extent, the feeling that carries over into the thing called love to a lesser extent, but like that kind of bittersweet situational comedy drama is what he really kind of excelled at, uh, when he did excel. I mean, you could say that his golden age was over, but Texasville, there's, that's a hangout movie. And one of the complaints that you would see in the mean reviews of it was that there's like almost an aimless lack of narrative momentum to it. Um, and and it's not perfect. Randy Quaid I think plays it a little broader than the rest of the cast. Um it's a film that was recut by Yeah. Yeah. Well, but in a way it almost feels like even though Larry McMurtry wrote the novel, so it's it's using the novel. It's not like but at the same time it also feels like um the stardom of everybody post-Last Picture Show seems to inform how much screen time they get. So Timothy Bottoms, you know, who was the star, if you had to pick one, of Last Picture Show, he's kind of like this sad, eccentric side character in Texasville, kind of still kind of wrapped up in that that era in a way that's kind of like tragic. But Jeff Bridges becomes the focus, and he's not really the focus in Last Picture Show at all, but he's the central character, and um, it's about his marriage to Annie Potts from, you know, Designing Women in Ghostbusters. And um, and Sybil Shepard comes back to town. And how things play out, it's got this kind of relaxed... Like, if you like those characters, it's... I don't want to say that it, it, um, it accomplishes what, like, Linklater does with the before films, where they almost improve or deepen um, one another. Like, it doesn't quite achieve Last Picture Show. I mean that's being kind but it, it it but it has its own strengths and its own pleasures you just if you don't need it to be the last picture show it's one of the more satisfying later Bogdanovich films I think um like well I'll, I'll definitely
0: give it a look-see because I'm very curious and you know if it focuses on Jeff Bridges I'm all for it because he's he remains probably my favorite actor he's great in it working today yeah. like yeah, like when you when you when you show me the, the the box set that this is included in, I was like, well, I should probably get that anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so.
2: I don't know. I mean, you think about like where Bogdanovich was in his own life and career, and where Sybil Shepherd was, and you can read all sorts of personal elements into it. But um, it, it's it it's a relaxed, pleasant, bittersweet comedy that just has the misfortune of having to equal the last picture show which it can't and um you know i mean it it might if you chopped away the things that don't work so well about the godfather 3 it feels like that level of accomplishment like it's not gonna it's not gonna touch the films from the 70s but it's it's not the two jakes or something you know it 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 has a (laughs) it 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 has its own merits i think that people were a little too hard on it and i don't i've the, the deleted scenes are on youtube um, so unfortunately, the the director's cut, which is only out on a laser disc, um, that um, you know the, the, that's that's a film where the, the – it's not like Last Picture Show, where the director's cut became the only version you can get. Um, which is you know, it, it, the, Texasville, you still have that theatrical cut, and hopefully they'll reinstate his version on Blu-ray one day. I don't, I don't. It doesn't really have the same reputation as um, Last Picture shows. I don't really know that it, it's a high priority for anybody. <laughs> Maybe after he's gone and his work gets reassessed, people will be nicer to that one. But it's, it's, it's worth a look. Um, and you, you have seen the film that he followed it up with, Noises Off.
1: Knocking! 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 Upstairs! Closet.
0: Oh, it's you! It's embracing the screwball comedy with noises off in the form of a play within a play, and it's got another great ensemble doing what they do so well. It's almost like Birdman without the pretense and the one shot kind of approach. It's it's got some pretty big laughs. I mean, yeah. I'm guessing that it can't compare to what it's like seeing this live on stage, but that's. Yeah, I mean, I like filmed plays. There, there, there's many examples of where that works, and this is just kind of a nice, simple diversion that showcases Bogdanovich does this type of comedy fairly well. Um, yeah, I will say that I don't think my, Michael Caine kind
2: of gets on my nerves in this for some reason, um, but every, yeah, I like I, everybody I, else. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I, I think I think that there's a moment where like things are happening backstage and and. Yeah, it, it's all moving so quickly and it's directed so assuredly that it's even though it was like kind of mostly negatively compared to the play and ever even some of the positive reviews like it's still it's still a very likable film that you can see why it has it cult following among people in the theater world yeah
0: um, no no most definitely
2: yeah and where is and he followed thing called oh. love Right? Th- yeah, Thing Call Love, which, did you know um, who did the uh, the polish on the screenplay for this? I should. It's your buddy Alan Moyle. What? Alan Moyle was brought in to help on the screenplay well, while they were making this. That makes sense. <laughs> and plus,
0: I know he mentioned that they're kind of buddies in the interview I did with him. Like, he just mentioned his yeah. name casually. It's like, oh, yeah, Peter Bogdanovich and I were having coffee here. You know? And yeah. You know, obviously casting just you know, an angel like Samantha uh, Mathis really helps overall with the grand scheme of things. But I mean, it's. I understand his intent here, and I think it's almost like him giving the Colleen Camp storyline, um, and they all laughed, its own movie, almost. Kind of, you know, just like expanding on country music and what it's like to go to Nashville with these aspirations but it almost feels like Nashville light um but i have to say this cuz you know doing research and looking at a couple of reviews i do not like ebert's review of this movie at all his
2: review is in his his review is insane it's it feels insane <laughs> to read it's this. completely focusing on river
0: phoenix and his downward spiral he doesn't really critique yeah. the movie he gives this one star And just, like, says it's uncomfortable to watch River Phoenix because he barely makes eye contact and he looks so detached. I I don't know. I didn't really get that at all.
2: Yeah. And and actually, um, there's a book that Bogdanovich wrote called Who the Hell's in It that has a chapter on River Phoenix, which has a lot of background about the making of this film. And, um, he talks about the drug use and basically says there's like one scene where he could tell that river Phoenix was on something, but for the most part, I mean, he spoke to him about it and for the most part, he didn't see real evidence of it. Like he saw him in the character, sure. um, but did not really see, there were instances of like drug use during the shoot, but not much. And not that he could pick up on cause he could tell when it was a problem. Um, So I think Ebert's review is totally off base with that. And it's sad because like the, uh, you know, like the uh, situation with Targets and, you know, even more so with They All Left. I mean, real life tragedy kind of harms the, you know, the reception this film got in a way. I know, Um, man. And... It's you know what film? You know what film? that reminded me of watching it again. Uh, it reminded me of like of Purple Rain was a country music uh, <laughs> movie that uh, focused on Apollonia, and she was talented. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, or, or it also reminded me of Begin Again, the Cure Knightley, Mark Ruffalo movie, where it's oh, yeah, yeah. you know it's just it's just about a singer songwriter trying to make it, and I like that. I mean, obviously, it speaks to me being a singer songwriter, and I've played in. Audition type settings or just coffee houses or bars. And you got, when you have obviously Samantha Mathis and River Phoenix, uh, and even Sandra Bullock, who I've kind of liked on and off throughout her career. Um, you know, I think it's a charming ensemble again I mean, I feel like I've been redundant saying that It almost just feels like, well, if it's a Peter Bogdanovich movie, you can count on that ensemble
2: <laughs> Well, you can also count on, like, again, like They All Laughed and At Long Last Love People singing live on camera I mean, it's, right. not them. it's often not them sing- like lip singing to playback It's often them performing live on camera um, Okay, yeah, and- no, that's true and, you know, I, I think he was brought into this existing project because of the Love Triangle thing, and they wanted to make a Last Picture Show-ish kind of thing. And Last Picture Show is how River Phoenix got interested because he wanted to work with him because of, of that film. Well, who wouldn't? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's that was the bait for everything from Streisand wanting to do What's Up, Doc? You know, I mean, it's it, it's that's the hook that brings in a lot of actors, is that film. Uh, yeah. um, but the... Um, yeah, what I liked I'll it. I, I liked it more on a rewatch. I'll give it that. So I wouldn't say it's a great film, but it's it it, it can be a likable film. Um, it, you know, it, it has like a certain kind of melodram you know melodrama convention to it. It and does. I, but it, I think that the characters are. I mean, if you, if you don't mind the, the the country music milieu, you know, I think it's a likable enough film. And it, again, it's like Texas Village. Like it has this very just low key kind of comedy to it. Um, and a real affection for small town southern towns that like I think I talked about this with, uh, when we talk about Junior Bonner. Like that I think that's something that like um you know, that Bogdanovich surprisingly excels at considering. And it's also he,
0: it's also Bill Nip. It seems like you just
2: you just you just go for that. Sometimes I do, yeah. I mean I certainly did with that film. Um yeah. I mean it's there's no villains you know it's it's just everyone kind of getting along and falling in and out of love with one another i mean it's another riff on the style of film that they all laughed is but it's just it's wedded to this kind of music business kind of thing and i'm not a country music fan i mean i like it fine you know for the purposes of films that bogdanovich does but it's i don't know i mean i think that it's an underrated film considering that i mean it, it doesn't hold a candle to his great work but it's I mean to have it just dismissed altogether. I think is a little unfair.
0: Well, I, I get the same melancholy feeling watching this that uh, you know I got with they all laughed simply because at the time, um, you know, like I'd say from from when I was a teenager and seeing Stand by Me, River Phoenix was my favorite actor. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, and then I you know I saw my own Private Idaho and. <sighs> Like that, you know that 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 scene by the campfire with Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix is one of my favorite scenes of all time, oh, and sure. and and certainly a lot of it has to do with River Phoenix. And so I watched this movie. I don't have that like the the kind of weird visceral reaction that Ebert had, but I certainly feel mm-hmm. sad because they they were together. I don't know if it was while making this movie. It might have been after, but they they were together. Right up until the end, when he overdosed, and it's it's just sad. It's just really, yeah. really sad. It's one of those actors that, like, yeah, he would have he, he would have been Brando. I mean, he would have really have gone on. It's I, I almost correlate it to like with Kurt Cobain when when he you know did what he did. It's just like yeah. such a tremendous loss and the amazing work that could have resulted from them hanging on would have been tremendous. So. Yeah, well, it's
2: funny, because as a fan, and I think we're both fans, of Running on Empty, and it's like he oh, had God, this yeah. kind of very sweet romance with Martha Plimpton on and off camera, and this is the same kind of situation where you can see them falling in love in real life oh, for sure. on camera, which, again, mythology, stories behind films, like almost all the Bogdanovich films have these great backstories, and uh, Think of Love might even have a more compelling backstory than the film itself for some people, but it's, you know, it, it's... Yeah, it's a great use of him, and as and he was already a, a leading star. So for him to play a supporting role to a woman's story, you know, I thought showed real um, yeah lack of ego.
0: Oh, absolutely, and you know, it would definitely be something I would happily talk to Samantha Mathis about because um, it's just in you know, it's just a she. She's one of those actresses that I wish could have had more success and leading roles because. I think she carries this movie very admirably. Like, not, oh my god, you know, it's, it's not like Sybil Shepherd or Colleen Camp level uh, of astonishment. But it's certainly um, charming. And just a, a, a likable screen presence where um, she just, she, I feel like she's a, just a really underrated actress.
2: Not just because of my love for Pump of the Volume. Um, yeah. So, Cat's meow. Well, I would, just before we get to Cat's Meow, I just want to say that, so, after the Thing Called Love bombed, um, he went into a lot of television directing, and I tried my best to catch as many TV movies as I could. Some of Holy them are cow. harder to see than others. Um, but he did uh, To Sir With Love 2, the sequel to the hit uh, Sydney Poitier film. Interesting um, choice. Not, not great. <laughs> um, he did The Price of Heaven, uh, uh, Rescuer Stories of Courage to Women. Uh, Naked City, A Killer Christmas, a Saintly, a Saintly Switch, which is a, um, a Disney body switch comedy that happens to be, um, you know, a rare African American friendly case of that kind of you know, uh, like father, like son, vice versa kind of you know, comedy trope. Oh
0: crap! I like body switching movies. I it's on You. It's on know. YouTube.
2: It's very silly. Uh, I,
0: I don't mind it. I actually, I I think like there's a couple of them I don't like 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 father like son. That's awful. Yeah. Um. But I I, I,
2: I would I would say a, a saintly switch is not great, but it's it it has a good heart to it, and you can see from the YouTube comments that people clearly have childhood fondness for it. So maybe I'm being a little bit of a dick, being hard on it. But I it's 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 likable, but it's very silly. Um. And then um. He also... Do you ever see a show called Fallen Angels? So Fallen Angels, real quick, was this film noir-centered cable show that um, Sidney Pollack was behind. And various big directors and actors directed episodes for including Soderbergh, around his King of the Hill Underneath period. And Bogdanovich directed directed an episode called A Diamond Dance, That's really good half-hour film noir uh, story. Jennifer Grey from Dirty Dancing and um, Eric Stoltz, you know, his mask discovery, uh, play the leads in it. And it's shot in the same way um, as At Long Last Love as far as, like, black and white in color. Like, the color palette is very stylized in a way that it's meant to evoke black and white while shooting in color film.
0: Wow. Um, What a cast for these episodes. Everybody... I I really like a lot of everybody that's involved with this show.
2: Yeah, a lot of them are on YouTube. A lot of them are on YouTube. Um, And I I just watched the Bogdanovich and and one of the Soderbergh ones, and you can see right away their own uh, sensibilities. Like, Bogdanovich was still... um, Soderbergh is, like, on the verge of doing underneath, like, still very visually stylized, kind of, you know, he's still very much focused on cool shots and cool lighting. Um, Bogdanovich, though, is right at home in that setting, in that time period, and that kind of snappy kind of patter. And uh, it's not a masterpiece, but it's, it's you know, if you're trying to fill out the later Bogdanovich years, it's like a buried treasure. And a lot of his television work is not, uh, it's just not that great. Like, it's very anonymous. And a lot of the strengths that he has, especially like the um, the dialogue, it's all very uh, expository. It's television. Oh, he, doesn't sure, really, sure, sure. he doesn't really have the means to conquer it. Um, so he did that for a while. Oh, Agnieszka Holland also did
0: some episodes, speaking of Europa, Europa. And sure.
2: Yeah, I this is interesting. I didn't yeah, know you, about might, this. you might take a peek at it. But so then, you were saying, so then like he does have a comeback in 2001 with the cat's meow, um, and it's a return to old Hollywood stories. It was an anecdote that was related yeah. to him by Orson Welles uh, when doing one of the uh, books he did on director. This is Orson Welles. And uh, what do you think of it? I like it. Um, I saw, I, I saw it a long time ago and, you know,
0: I thought it was fine for what it was. I, I think it, I did experience a little restlessness with it. Like I felt it was a little long, but you got like Edward Herman, who's great. Eddie Izzard is definitely the standout. Yeah. Um, and, and Kirsten Dunst holds her own very well. I mean, she's, I've always liked her, you yeah. know, even, even in, even if she spent some time doing like bring it on kind of movies, she she still held her own quite well, and I always feel like she's underrated. Um, I mean, up until like maybe Melancholia, not a lot of people put her in high regard, but I always have, and yeah. I like seeing her in this world. Um, and it's just it's just an inter- I mean, again, you have like a little mystery going on, and a ensemble of characters all in one setting, kind of. Uh, colliding together in different ways. Is yeah it's it's almost like a Gosford Park kind of a situation here.
2: Yeah. Oh, totally. And I think that it had um, had Woody Allen made it, it would have gotten her an Oscar nomination. But the problem with it was that uh Lionsgate ran out of money during the marketing of that film. Mm-hmm. And so it got some kind notices, and it you know it, it does feel like a like a, a solid later Woody Allen film in a lot of ways. Sure, um, and a lot of people you know in it you know like uh, Jennifer Tilly you know have done work with him, and um, yeah, it's it's enjoyable. I mean, it's not it's not a masterpiece, but it's it's. I, and it, it, you're right, it could be cut down a little bit, but it's 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 fun. It's, yeah, it's a fun entertaining film.
0: And I was kind of blown away with the Tom Petty documentary. I mean, you gotta set a, a, a lot, uh, yeah, set aside some time for it.
2: Yeah, about four hours, yeah. yeah. But whew, so yeah. good. Yeah. What's well, funny because like I don't know how much he even knew about Tom Petty before doing it. I know, um, right?
0: I I just wouldn't think that would they would. I mean, maybe like Springsteen and Bogdanovich, maybe. But I don't know. I just never thought of like Bogdanovich. Deciding to, you know, sort of make an epic documentary about Tom Petty, but once you watch it, you can you can see why they work so well. To, I mean, they're they just it, it just feels like a, a perfect marriage between content and uh, director. And I mean, yeah, a lot of it is Talking Heads, but it's fun and fascinating. And talk about a career this guy has had.
2: Oh yeah, good yeah, no, lord. And it's- and it's funny because like you can tell that Bogdanovich, as a as a as a newcomer to Petty, wants to hear these stories, and he has them at such um, it's such a relaxed kind of kind of way about them that they they just uh, you know unload all of these great anecdotes. And I mean, I'm not a Tom Petty guy. I mean, I I respect him. I like some so- songs, but I, w- I I don't own a Tom Petty record. But it's it doesn't. I mean, if you like those kind of you know rock music documentaries, it's one of the. Uh, most entertaining and it feels like if anything it feels like it includes more than than you know when by the time they get into like the nuances of like later solo records it feels like almost like overkill but it's still sure it's still uh it's still like the, it has hours of pleasure you know to be had with it
0: uh-huh definitely a lot of the celebrity anecdotes and just you know how people feel about him it's very true. I mean, he's a very consistent songwriter. I mean, my dad really liked him, so I think that's probably why, you know, when I hear a Tom Petty song, uh, you know, I get that, the nostalgia, and it just, it fills me with joy. But at the same time, he's not like, he's not one of the artists that I, I, I listen to to get inspired to, you know, write songs. It's more of just like, oh, that's nice. That's really yeah. pleasant music to hear once in a while, and it's, it's inoffensive, and it's well-constructed pop rock.
2: Well, it's funny because like whenever you think about directors that have their own reputation for narrative films being hired as celebrity, uh, makers of, uh, rock documentaries, whether it be Cameron Crowe doing a Pearl Jam film or even Jim Jarmusch doing the Stooges, um, you know, looking for traces of the director's signature, uh, fiction film, uh, Stylistic ticks—it's you're not going to find very many. Like they're they're no. there to they're they're there to tell a story and and kind of disappear into the background. And you know, I mean, in the, for the purpose of like a discussion of Bogdanovich's career, I mean, you're not going to find. I mean, you're going to find like you know the use of the Rio Bravo clips and things to like to illustrate uh, certain things. But it's for the most part, um, I, I think if you s- sat down in the middle of it and started watching it and didn't know Bogdanovich was behind it, you wouldn't recognize him in Exa- it. Exactly.
0: Yeah, I've, I I think. Th- he does it such a a good job, and again, it's not like I would have thought like this is a must see or anything. But I just kept hearing such great things about it that I decided to watch it, and I was like, yeah, you know what? Four hours flew by. Oh yeah, and it's it, you know, it's, it's it the only Bogdanovich
2: film streaming on uh, Netflix
0: these days. That's kind of that's kind of sad, and she's funny that way. I remember Patrick like saying, "Hey, if you like screwball comedies, this is one of the better ones of this year." After like *Mistress America* and *Tangerine*, yeah, uh, yeah. And I, 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 pretty much agree with that. Again, it's, it's, it's flawed, and I'm not like too high up on some of the casting. I'm, like, I don't know. I don't. Jennifer Aniston for me, I don't know why she just doesn't work for me in like these screwball comedies. Like horrible bo- Like I, the best performance she's ever given is still *The Good Girl*, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, because it's a very un-Jennifer Aniston like
2: role. So I I don't know. Just, but Im- Imogen Poots though, oh she's fantastic. Is amazing in it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and she's 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 so she's really great. Um, she's great in Green Room. Um, mm-hmm. I know whenever I've seen her, I'm like, yeah, who is that? She's great. <laughs> so and that's definitely yeah. the case here. Well, it's funny because
2: so she's funny that way, which was known as Squirrel to the Nuts for a long time because it played festivals. Great title. Um, It feels like a present from his fans that turned into powerful filmmakers Mm -hmm. to him because that was a thing where Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach stepped in to executive produce so he could make one more film for himself. And now it's Brett Ratner. (laughs) Oh, is Brett Ratner
0: producing something? Yeah, Brett Ratner is like helping him make... Another movie, apparently. That's like the latest thing I. Re- I think that was in the P- Peter Subchinsky, formerly of the uh, Brian De Palma episode, sure. did an interview on uh dot uh, Okay. So, so yeah, I mean, that was like the last line of the of the interview was like, "Yeah, I'm working on something with Brett Ratner." <laughs> I was like, Brett Ratner, but then again, like he's produced some good stuff, so I'm not gonna,
2: yeah, get down I mean, on it, that guy. It, it, it feels like a last film. So if it does. I mean, hope- I mean, you know, maybe they'll make he'll make another one with Brett Ratner, but this feels like just a Valentine. I mean, the way that Nickelodeon kind of like I was just going to say that. I mean, but this even more so because it has cameos from Sybil Shepherd and Tatum O'Neill. Mm-hmm. and uh, that ends you know, the it, charm. Yeah, I mean, it's – but, you know, it, it's, it's a uh, – I mean, I, I know that Wes Anderson might be the one that says that it tries to evoke a kind of they all laughed feel. I don't quite – if anything, it feels more like a Woody Allen film to me than, than Bogdanovich in, in some – and maybe that's also going to think of Owen Wilson yeah, uh, the Midnight true. in Paris. But um, it's a likable film. It's, a, it's, a it's slight It's a slight film. It's a film that, like, uh, you know, ran into, like, multiple recasting problems. I mean, like, Brie Larson and Tatum O'Neill. I think Tatum O'Neill was the original lead back in the day. Like, this script has been around a long time. Right. Uh, But um, I I don't know. It's like, I know it feels
0: like a a good final film, but I don't want it to be. (laughs) Yeah. I think think
2: he's got another in him that could surpass this. I hope. I would hope so. But, I mean, you know, if it, if it ends up being the last thing he does, it's... It's just a, a a light, you know, friendly. You know, no, no villains. Everyone kind of just like sleeping with one another, and like you know, it, it. It's it's a likable. Will Forte is also quite good in it. We didn't mention him. Um, like it's got a great cast. It's got a just a gentle, laid back spirit to it. Like agreed. It's 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 a, it's a if it ends up being his last film, it's a it's perfectly acceptable to go out on that one. So I
0: got to thank you very much for. I mean, I might have put him on the list regardless, but, you know, knowing that Last Picture Show was your favorite film, uh, I wanted to make sure to do Bogdanovich sooner than later because what a discovery. Once again, like, you know, the the movies I watched for the first time, like, um, they all laughed and St. Jack. um, And believe it or not, I'd never seen Paper Moon before. Um, (laughs) I know. A lot of people have that reaction. So... He's so great in so many different ways. Um, and, you know, but he, he, he manages, he was influenced by, by the best, you know? And you got, when a guy's like, you know what, Orson Welles, or I mean, Citizen Kane is the movie that changed my life. He's going to be a good filmmaker, I think. I hope. <laughs> so I, th- I think he just he, he, he does what we talked about where he pays homage and he captures the same style and sensibilities of films from older eras. But he also makes it completely his own to where it doesn't feel like he's ripping them off. So yeah. I'm grateful for his work.
2: Researching for this, I, I, I was reminded just like you forget he's a fighter. Like, he was somebody that fought with executives and, like, got into trouble. I mean, and he, he was maybe an arrogant son of a bitch. And maybe that was part of what was fueling that. But he was somebody that was really committed to a vision. I mean, even if it was a vision that was paying homage to old Hollywood in a way, uh, especially early on. Like, he's st- still someone that, like, remained kind of uh, uncompromising, considering, like, he was, you know, wanting to specialize in light entertainment mostly and targets
0: uh, and targets just feels like it's ahead of its time too. Yeah. I mean it, it, like we mentioned it's like kind of like the outlier in a film that you wouldn't expect him to make. You can watch that today and still have the same it just it's it's one of those movies where it it doesn't it feels timeless in that yes it pays homage to like or I mean it's capturing the drive in, it's capturing Boris Karloff at that time period. But what goes on in this world with violence it's, it, it, you know, p- p- there have been shootings in movie theaters for crying out loud. Sure. So, you know, you watch something like that, and you will have a, an intense reaction to it. And then, last picture show, like I said, watching it now with like this kind of air of melancholy throughout my, uh, you know, friends, it just feels like the the perfect what now, what next kind of movie where we're all in this we're all in our own bubbles, we're all in our little towns, or big cities, and still feeling kind of isolated and uncertain of what's going to happen in the world. So that's that's kind of what Last Picture Show speaks to me now more than ever. And that's kind of why I was like, I don't know if I want to go to Texas, Phil. <laughs> but Because I feel like it's just that, it, the melancholy is just apropos for right now. It's not like I'm devastated, but I, I think I also could be in denial about that. <laughs> There's no
2: shortage of melancholy in Texasville. It's it's a different okay. feeling, but it's 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 a heavy hearted film in its own way. It just it just laughs at its own melancholy a little bit more than Last Picture Show does.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and um, thank goodness for Peter's big heart. Because I feel like yes, he's kind of an egotist and I can sense that throughout, but I, I, I get the impression that he has you know, he wouldn't he wouldn't have had the relationships that he's had. If he wasn't genuinely a sweet person too, so it's
2: yeah, it he's, seems that way. He, he's a complicated guy with a complicated career, but I mean that's what makes him a fascinating person to talk about. Um, oh yeah, and yeah, it's 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 a one of a kind kind of career. Um, I wonder sometimes if he'll be more. I think I've mentioned this more than once now. Like like when he goes if people will be kinder to the work that follows Paper Moon, because I, I, th- if you read the little summary on IMDb, like the the, the biography of him, like there's one that is kind of mean, and then one that feels like it was written by Bogdanovich. <laughs> um, and, and neither one of them feels correct. <laughs> That's fine. Um, like there's dueling uh, write-ups of him. But anyway, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much again, Bill, for being on the show. Um, oh, thank you so much. I don't expect this to be the last time that we get to talk on Directors Club because, like I said, I will be um, a guest. Right now I'm planning four or five times next year that I'll definitely be on the show, and that could potentially be either Don Coscarelli or Zulofsky because they are two directors that uh, I'm I'm more curious about, and I know you'll be on those episodes regardless.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I'll be very curious to hear your take on them, so I hope that that's the case.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I watched the trailer for Cosmos, and I'm like, what is this?
2: I gotta oh, yeah. see this. This is weird. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe we'll be talking about Cosmos on a future episode. I sure or hope two. so.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, very true, very true. Because <laughs> I think, I mean, I still, you know, I am gonna every, well flashback, but people will hear the introduction and of the unfortunate news involving Patrick's uh, n- lack of participation. But I think we can handle the best of two twenty sixteen episode. Yeah, I think we can still do that.
2: So I wonder if we'll have any films that overlap. <laughs> That'll, be great. That'll be great to
0: see. Um, so please see Arrival. I'm, I want to know what your take is on that. It's one of those movies when you walk out of it, you want to know what other cinephiles think. Because Oh, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, spoiler alert, Eric Childress did not like it. <laughs> so I was like, well,
2: I don't always agree with that guy. Um, I, I disagree with him almost all the time. So that's actually probably something that I – you know that's that's something that makes me curious now
0: <laughs> yeah oh it's 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 really something special, so yeah, ladies and gentlemen, the next episode is going to be on a director with a small but fascinating filmography. He won the listeners' poll, uh just beating out Edgar Wright at the last minute. you know, in fact, I thought for sure Hillary Clinton was going to win, but um oh wait, oh wait, I'm sorry, wrong, wrong poll, um mm. but anyway, I just. <laughs> The next episode will be on Jonathan Glazer, and I'm I'm excited to invite back Kurt Halfyard, who hasn't been on the show in a very long time. Oh yeah, and he's one of my favorites. And we're also going to have uh, Ms. Kate Blair, who's one of my new favorite people now. So that's going to be a really great discussion. I think as much as you know, Sexy Beast and Birth are interesting films to talk about. Under the Skin, we'll probably spend most of the show on. <laughs> and, and that's one that you were not completely bowled over by, I'm, f- right? I'm still four out of five. Uh, I know a lot of people who are five out of five through okay. and through for that movie. Um, I don't, I'm still not crazy about the third act, but I've mm. only watched it once, and I've been okay. waiting, waiting for the right time to rewatch it. Now that I know where that movie's going to go, maybe I'll appreciate it better, so we'll see. Um, so that's, that episode will be up for Thanksgiving weekend, and then we'll see what happens for December. Um, and of course, you'll be on for the best 26th episode in the new year. So there's a lot to look forward to, people. Yeah. Where can people
2: find you? I know that the podcast is on hiatus right now, but... Yeah. Um I mean the Now Playing Network supporting characters page is probably where you should go for my old episodes. I'm gonna bring the show back next year, but you can find the show on iTunes and on the Now Playing site. Uh I should be doing some guest appearances for film jive and uh Fresh Perspective is gonna have me untuck Magnolia. Oh great. So um, What's the film Jive episode? Uh Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Awesome. That's great. Yes, so those are those are in the works. Um. Zach is
0: so smart. It's I mean, like I, I think I feel I think he's like ten years younger too. But he's just like, man, that kid is. A, a, I don't know why I'm calling him kid, but I, yeah. I'm just really. Imp- I've I've been impressed with him for a very long time. That's why he was a guest on on this show. So I'm yeah. People should check out Film Jive for the uh, soundtrack of Terror episodes. But oh yeah. Um, yeah, we did a very memorable one on Synecdoche, and I I can't wait for your episode with him too. So.
2: Yeah, I I have no idea what to expect from it. I've never been on his show or or fresh perspective. So I'm hoping for the best with both
0: of them. Yeah, me too. It's 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 an interesting time for for podcasting. Um and as a lot of people are, you know, privy to now, it's the times they are a changing. <laughs> so hopefully it's for the best and yeah. but don't worry again because I imagine Bill will be on for three episodes next year, and certainly I'll be on for four or five. And as far as I know, and I've I've talked with Colin, uh, we got not only Al to to join the family and basically take over as host, but we have another very very smart co-host that's going to be uh, joining Al. So I'm I'm really excited. Oh, I mean, that's a lot great. of a lot of people might. Be skeptical and might certainly have reservations about continuing to listen. But as far as I'm concerned, and I trust Colin's judgment on this, too, because he knows a lot of very smart movie people that go to these movie meetups and just talk movies for hours on end. So I'm excited. I really am. I think think the show is going to be different, but in a very good way. So I hope people hang on. And once again, please visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. I think you can find me at Letterbox at Instant Gym. Are you just Bill Ackerman over there? I believe I am, yeah. So, yeah, go follow Bill, go follow me, and we'll talk to you in two weeks for the Jonathan Glazer episode. Thanks again, Bill, for being on the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
3: If you want a lover, I'll do anything you ask me. And if you want another kind of love or wear a mask for you, if you want a partner, take my hand, or if you want to strike me down in anger, here I stand, I'm your man.
2: You know what, Phil? You know film but it reminded me of watching it again. Uh it reminded me of like of Purple Rain was a country music uh movie that uh focused on Apollonia and she was talented. <laughs> <laughs>